We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Tonight, I'm going to be giving my own thoughts about the events of September 11, 2001. Uh, usually, I get this question asked a lot about what my thoughts are regarding what happened on 9-11 and what didn't happen. Um, do you believe in the official narrative or are you a conspiracy theorist? Are you a skeptic, a debunker, a truther? I'm none of those things. I'm an independent investigator into the events of September 11th, 2001. That's all I am. Um, I started down this road in 2006. Uh, there were two people that were actually uh, talking about the geopolitics of 9-11. That was the late Justin Raimondo of antiwar.com and Ryan Dawson. Uh, the, the conversation seemed to be centered on how the World Trade Center's uh, towers collapsed. And physics was not something that I'm well-versed in. In fact, I didn't do very well in school with physics. So I instead went uh, the other route, the who, what, when, where, and why the steps an investigator would take. And so for the next uh, seven years, I read uh, as much as I could. And I didn't have a, any viral media to speak of until about 2015. Um, but during that time, I read a lot of books on religious fundamentalism, uh, uh, U.S.-Israeli foreign policy, U.S.-Saudi foreign policy, how the intelligence apparatuses work like the CIA and the NSA, um, what is Al-Qaeda and what their beliefs are, what is Wahhabi Islam. Um, there was a lot at the plate, and a lot of books, a lot of documents and files to read. And I wanted to know what I was talking about. Like an investigator, I didn't rush into the subject. In fact, I went a little bit overboard and took my time. And almost after 10 years, I decided that I was going to make viral media. And I'm not somebody that is too confident about how they sound and how they looked on video. And so I was very self-conscious about 
making videos. And, but once I did, uh, I got comfortable with it. Um, regarding 9-11 itself, it's not something that I could explain in five to 10 minutes to somebody. And so tonight might be a little bit longer than usual audio because what I want to do is bring about a comprehensive discussion that is basically rare uh, in this day and age, unfortunately, uh, regarding how the events of September 11, 2001 uh, came about. Like all human events in history, everything has a starting point. And I think the uh, starting point, uh, I could go back to the early 20th century uh, regarding the foundations of Saudi Arabia, um, how Israel and the United States, how their foreign policy uh, became an influence in the region of the Middle East, as well as the United States, and what backlash this caused. Same thing for Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, how that relationship with the United States precipitated the events happening in the Middle East. All this has a part to play into what we see now, because 9-11 is simply just a reaction. Uh, I can tell you that the narrative that was put forth to us by the State Department, that 19 Islamic fundamentalists basically hijacked four planes and crashed them into uh, American targets because they hated our freedoms is false, demonstrably false. And the reasons for this are not as clear, but our foreign policy is a primary reason for most of these terrorist attacks that we see today. And yes, there's a, a fundamental um, belief behind these um, people, these radical fundamentalists, that is uh, uncompromising toward democracy and towards secular values. And I'll get into that in a bit. But the primary reason for terrorist attacks, and they're nothing more than guerrilla attacks uh, against an imperialist nation, that's what the United States is. But it's a response to our detrimental foreign policy. I'll start with the 1979 Afghan-Soviet War, which gave us uh, a new enemy. For decades prior, the enemy, the preconceived enemy to the United States was communism. Uh, the Cold War, the Soviet Union bloc against the United States. And the Soviet Union was quite powerful at one point. under Stalin, under Lenin, the ideologies permeated here in the States and throughout the 1940s and 50s. We had hearings um, that subjugated and basically infringed on the rights of certain Americans who were conspiring or alleged to have conspired with the Soviet Union. Um, these hearings were led by Joseph McCarthy, called the McCarthy hearings, 
where they would, uh, it was actually called McCarthyism, uh, which is the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason uh, relating to communism. Joe McCarthy was a Republican senator out of Wisconsin. Um, and this basically permeated through the public and private sector. And under Harry Truman, he allowed for this to happen. And this basically had caused a backlash. It caused McCarthy to uh, become ostracized and hidden in public life afterwards uh, because of this, because the scare wasn't as needed, wasn't as exaggerated as McCarthy laid it out to be. Um, the communist bloc wanted to spread the empire, however, and it started with the Middle East because with the Middle East comes the oil industry. And the oil industry is a very powerful tool, especially in times of war. Um, you have to fuel tanks, uh, you have to fuel uh, jeeps, making weapons in the United States. Uh, it, it's a powerful, it's the, it's black gold, if you will, of the industry. And so at this time, Arab secular nationalism, which was permeated much throughout the Middle East at the point of the 1940s and 50s, had a stronghold in countries like Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. Um, and it was made, uh, it was influenced, heavily influenced by former Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Egypt was the primary source for Arab nationalism. And so the, the Soviets basically uh, grew relations with Egypt and Syria and Afghanistan. Um, and during 1978, the People's Democratic Par Party of Afghanistan, which is a Marxist-Leninist uh, political party, uh, basically committed a coup d'etat on the uh, Afghanistan president, Mohammed Daoud Khan. Uh, on April 27, 1978. In Dawood Khan, most of his family were killed at the presidential palace. Uh, many of his associates were arrested and jailed and tortured. And the people that were behind the PDPA were Haifazullah Amin and Nur Muhammad Taraki. Nur Muhammad Taraki was the general secretary of the Revolutionary Council. Um, under the leadership of Nur Muhammad Taraki, Afghanistan went through a radical change. Uh, Taraki was behind a 20-year treaty of friendship with the Soviet Union in December 5th of 1978, which greatly expanded the Soviet aid to his regime. Taraki was a long-term student of socialism, and the Soviets actually liked him as a person. He visited the Soviet Union 
many times throughout the 1960s. Taraki uh, basically was a, a very astute uh, follower of nationalism and socialism. And so, but under his regime, Taraki was a brutal dictator. Um, the pastors, the native pastors in the country uh, who were against secular uh, Soviet ideology like communism uh, basically were rounded up and arrested. This led to uh, killings of the Pashtun community. And so basically the Islamists, if you will, the Afghans, the, the Pashtuns basically uh, fought back. But the Islamic world did not respond. To these people's pleas, which basically caused uh, an outcry from the Afghan Muslim community. Uh, Taraki, as well as other party leaders of the PDPA, uh, initiated, initiated uh, radical Marxist policies um, that challenged both traditional Afghan values. Uh, well-established Afghan Pashtun uh, values in the rural areas um, where Taraki and the PDPA backed by the Soviets introduced women to political life and legislated an end to forced marriages. Um, he ruled over a nation with a deep uh, Islamic religious culture and a long history of resistance to any type of strong centralized governmental control. Now, this is where Afghanistan basically was a land without a true democracy or a true power structure. Uh, for thousands of years, other governments and other leaders, other armies tried to conquer this country and could not, giving it the nickname, the graveyard of empires. The leadership under Taraki fell when Taraki and Haifazul Amin basically fell out. Haifazul Amin tried to take power away from Taraki when Taraki visited Cuba in 1979. Um, and while this was going on, the Afghan people revolted against the PDPA government uh, when they initiated Soviet reforms over longstanding traditional reforms. The Soviets basically uh, were torn between Amin and Taraki. Amin didn't have a close relationship with the Soviets at the time, as they did with Taraki himself. And so Amin took control of the, uh, the government while Taraki was away and had Taraki arrested. Even in 
even though Taraki was warned by the Soviets about a basic power grab by Amin. Amin, however, his uh, power grab was short-lived. And even though he was a trusted asset to the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union basically did not like what he did to Taraki. And Amin himself was basically a brutal dictator toward the Pashtuns. And about this time, uh, there was a revolt against the communist bloc in Afghanistan. Again, the Arab world leaders did not intervene. This caused a, a basically a break between the nationalist Arab leaders and their uh, adherents away from the religious sector. And so we saw this break. Even though Arab nationalism was basically slowly being replaced as an ideology, the Arab world basically saw them as a useless entity, even after the defeat of Jordan and Egypt and Syria in the Six-Day War by the Israelis. The Saudi government, basically, and the religious sector were calling for the end of Arab nationalism. The Soviets basically assassinated Amin at the presidential palace, much like in the same way Daoud was assassinated by Taraki and Amin. The Soviets went to the presidential palace on December 20th, 1979, and assassinated Amin. Several of the Soviet commanders involved with the assassination of Amin thought the plan to attack the palace was crazy. Um, although the military had been informed by the Soviets through their commanders, Yuri Drozdov and uh, Vasily Kolesnik, I don't think I'm saying his name right, thought that the president, Amin was a CIA agent who had betrayed the Sour Revolution On January 2nd, 1980, the PDPA's 15th anniversary, Kamal, Barbara Kamal, was now the general secretary. And he was implemented as the president by the Soviets. And at about this time, the United States, seeing that the Soviets invaded Kabul, basically called for UN Resolution Security Council to uh, pass resolution condemning the Soviets, in which they did. Um, the problem with this became that the, the problem that hardly anyone saw, the general public anyway, was a break between the religious Muslims and the secular Muslims. And because of the, the silence that was responded 
to uh, the cries of the Pashtuns in Afghanistan while they were being slaughtered by the communists. This caused a, a fervent reaction, almost this uh, resounding reaction of a jihad. And so the Pakistani government, led by uh, Zia-ul-Haq, started to train Mujahideen, Afghan fighters. And the Afghans were excellent fighters. The Mujahideen, uh, or the plural form Mujahid, which I'll use sometimes during the discussion, is an Arabic term that broadly refers to Islamic guerrillas who engage in jihad or the fight on behalf of Islam. There are two types of jihad, offensive and defensive jihad. Offensive jihad, which was later introduced during the Soviet war, which I'll get into in a bit, and defensive jihad, which is what I just explained, to fight on behalf of Islam. The war, the Afghan-Soviet war, uh, basically started on December 24th, 1979. The KGB basically infiltrated the Afghan government and started uh, using persuasive ideas to get as many Afghans on their side because they knew that there was a conflict coming up. Uh, the United States saw the danger for this and saw this as a power grab. And under President Jimmy Carter, the National Security Advisor, uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski warned Carter that the Soviets were trying to get to the Caspian Sea, north of Iran, the largest in the world at the time, and to the current day, is the largest untapped oil reserves in the world. And so the Pakistans, with help from the CIA, the British MI6, the Israeli Mossad, they basically started training Afghan Mujahideen for large-scale operations, war, how to use tanks, uh, missiles, RPGs, large-scale large, large uh, weaponry here. The Mujahideen were not friendly to Arabs, foreign fighters. The Afghans were much more rugged. They were much more military oriented than the Arabs, but the Arabs were willing to die for a cause, or in this case, the Islamists. Those who believe in the ideologies of Ibn Tamiya, Muhammad Ibn Abdul al-Wahhab, ultra-Orthodox Salafi Islam, a dangerous small 
percentage of these people who believe that the only way to propagate Islam is to force and to usurp Arab governments. And that's how you create the caliphate. And this was the idea of Said Qutb, an Egyptian author and uh, jurist himself, who basically said that the only way for Islam to survive against the sins of secularism purported by the West and the communists of the Soviet Union was to force secular Arab governments out of power and to implement uh, Islamists who would then uh, govern the country by the Quran and the Sunnah, the traditions or the hadiths of scholars like Ibn Tamir, Ibn Hanbali. The Islamists basically flooded Pakistan's uh, cities, Islamabad and Peshawar. And Afghan warlords, tribal leaders, huge uh, factions like Gulbani Nekbatar and the Hizabi Islami, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf and the Hizab um Abu Hidraj al Iraqi. Uh, huge warlords that had thousands of people behind them started receiving funding through third-hand sources, but they were coming from the intelligence apparatus. Um, Operation Cyclone, which was basically a code name for the CIA's program to arm and finance the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, from, uh, which was a 10-year period between 79 to 89. Uh, but it was the Pakistan ISI who basically trained these Mujahideen in training camps in Peshawar in Islamabad. But what they didn't have was a recruitment office. Now, there was an Algerian scholar, an Algerian foreign fighter named Abdullah Anas, who came to Pakistan to the call of jihad. And while there, he met another imam, a notorious imam, and a jurist himself, and also a qadi, which is basically someone who memorized the Quran, a Palestinian native named Abdullah Azam. And together, they constructed an idea to create a recruitment office. And that idea was called the Maktab al-Kidama. And when translated to English is the Afghan Services Bureau, but they needed money. And so Abdullah Azam traveled to Riyadh and persuaded a rich Saudi who was basically at this time offering his father's construction services to build roads and ditches for the Afghan Mujahideen. And his name was Osama bin Laden, who at this time just graduated out of the uh, King Abdul Aziz University for, ge for engineering and wanted to do something with his life because at this time, bin Laden was basically a man without a mission. His father was dead. His family was in charge of the largest construction firm in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi bin Laden group, which basically had contacts inside the United States led by James Arbath, who was a friend to the Bush family. James Arbath was a Texas businessman who had business interests in aircraft sales and leasing and real estate. 
but he had a he had a very close relationship with Salim bin Laden and Khalid bin Mahfouz. But Salim bin Laden uh, was the eldest son of Mohammed bin Laden, the founder of the Saudi bin Laden group, and the half brother of Osama bin Laden. Highly educated, um, became became friendly with the Bush family through James Bath. Um, James Bath uh, served as the North American representative for the Bin Laden family. And using his connections, he met, he introduced George W. Bush, who was the vice president under Reagan. Um, Bath had connected him to Salim Bin Laden who also had contacts with BCCI Bank, for which um, George W. Butt, who was at the director of the CIA at the time, before he was vice president, had accounts at BCCI Bank. Khalid bin Mahfouz was a Saudi Arabian billionaire and the chairman of the National Commercial Bank. He was also the non-executive director for the Bank of Credit and Commerce, that's BCCI. BCCI Bank, a little bit of background here, was an international bank founded by Agha Hassan Abedi, uh, a Pakistani financier, uh, had, four, had over 400 branches worldwide in 78 countries and had assets in excess of up to $20 billion which was making it at that time the seventh largest private bank in the world. However, the clients for this bank were notorious. Clients such as the Central Intelligence Agency, the Pakistan ISI, George W. Bush, who had multiple accounts under front names, Saddam Hussein, Manuel Noriega, who was um, the leader of Panama, Hussein Mohammed Ershad, the Bangladesh Army Chief, and Samuel Doe, a, li a Liberian politician between 1980 and 1990, as well as the Medellin cartel, a drug cartel out of Colombia, headed by um, Pablo Escobar, and a notorious counter-terrorist uh, and terrorist czar, uh, Abu Nadal, the leader of uh, the Fatah Revolutionary Council, which is which is which was a militant Palestinian splinter group, and brokered off from the Palestinian Liberation Organization headed under Yasser Arafat. Through Bath, he became good friends with the Bin Laden family. The Bin Laden family became powerful adversaries under the Bush family. This was huge because bin Laden's financing came from directly his father's construction company, which was helping the Afghan Mujahideen at the time. And so this is where bin Laden became sort of a pariah, a savior, if you will. However, he was an Arab. Even though he was an Arab, the Afghans looked upon him with 
true respect because the Arabs and the Afghans were not friendly to one another. Operation Cyclone was a 10-year operation which spent over 20 to 30 million dollars per year between 1980 to 1987 and approximately 630 million dollars from the CIA went to this operation. Charlie Wilson, who was a Texas congressman, and Michael Vickers, who was a CIA paramilitary officer, who developed a close relationship. Um, but their strategy was to provide the Mujahideen with a mix of weapons, tactics, logistics, uh, training programs, which enhanced the rebels' ability to fight a guerrilla war against the Soviets because the Soviets were not equipped to fight in a mountainous region like the Afghan, uh, the country of Afghanistan. But one thing the Soviets had on at their disposal, which was a uh, a great weapon, was the Chinook helicopters, planes. Because at the time, the Mujahideen did not have uh, surface-to-air missiles at the time. And the Afghans, I mean, the Soviets, basically bombarded the mountainous region. Abdul Anas even says it in his book, uh, the, uh, over the mountains was uh, basically that they the Soviets basically saturated uh, the eastern provinces of Afghanistan. And while they were doing this to uh, respond to the Afghan tanks, they basically hundreds of thousands of, of mines in the ground. And to this day, Afghanistan has more mines than anywhere in the world. I think it's over two million mines, which are un, which are not, uh, which haven't been found. There's still, there's still children, people who are now grown up from 1979 without legs and arms, and to this day that you know, those mines are still active. And so the CIA were basically torn on whether to support, keep supporting Gulbuddin Hekbator, who is a brutal dick, a brutal warlord, by the way. Here's a man who used to walk around and throw acid into women's faces for not wearing the niqab. Um, and another uh, commander by the name of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who is an effective uh, military commander. So effective that uh, he basically created a group or help to create a group, the Northern Alliance. All support to the Mujahideen, the Sunni Mujahideen, the Arabs, was funneled through the government of Pakistan. And so the Afghan, the Afghan, uh, the Afghan Services Bureau was created in 1981. With the help of bin Laden's financing, they created multiple houses, which was in charge of different areas of training, um, uh, logistics, uh, financing, uh, recruitment, uh, teaching the Quran. Azam brought this idea of a spiritual Islam, a spiritual war to Afghanistan something much different, which caught on to a lot of people. 
especially to the Afghans, because what they wanted was to uh, create an Islamic country in Afghanistan without interference from a secular worldview like they had for the previous 80 years. And so Azam at this time was traveling inside the United States to cities like Kansas City, Los Angeles, Indianapolis, Brooklyn, trying to recruit native Arabs into the fight. But there weren't many Afghan warlords who were accommodating or willing to have them within their ranks, except for two Afghan leaders, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf and Jalaluddin Haqqani. These were the only Afghan warlords who were allowing Arabs to train at their camps. And if you heard of who Jalalu Akani is, it's now a designated terrorist group called the Haqqani Network, an offshoot of the Taliban later on. Under the Reagan administration and with his vice president now retired of the CIA uh, as, his, as his director, George W. Bush, they basically turned the tide of the war and initiated a program which allowed Stinger missiles into the hands of the Mujahideen. Meanwhile, hundreds of millions were coming from the CIA as well as Saudi donors who became uh, compassionate toward the, uh, the Arabs and the Afghans themselves in the fight against communism. This was a huge turning of the war because basically now they had an answer for the airplanes and the helicopters. And the Soviets had no answer for this. They were losing on the ground, but they were winning in the air. And meanwhile, the push for Kandahar, the push for Kabul, the Pakia province, was what was won by the Afghans. And so at the same time in 1986, Bin Laden thought of another idea. Since nobody wanted to host the Arabs as a camp, he created his own camp, the Al-Masada. From the English, the lion's den. At the same time in 1986, Egyptians, radical Egyptians from a group called the Egyptian Islamic Jihad were traveling to Afghanistan. They were being released from the Torah prison which, in which they were being detained after the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. And so the SSI, the security services of Egypt, began torturing over a thousand people in these cells. Some of them like Dr. Ayman al-Zwahari, Dr. Imam al-Sharif, who went by the name Dr. Fadl, um, Omar Abdel Rahman, the co-leader of the Gamma Islamia, Muhammad ibn Abdul al-Faraj, Salam al-Faraj, the co-leader of the al-Jihad, which later became Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Isam Kamari, 
Abu Hafs al-Masri, Abu Ubaidah al-Banshari, real leaders of the Egyptian radical selves. So to rid themselves of a problem, Hosni Mubarak, the new president, uh, basically released the jails in 1986. And so many of these people, in the hopes that these people also would be killed in the war. Uh, and so a lot of these people went to Afghanistan. And some of these people went to al-Masada camp, which was an, the only Arab-run camp in Afghanistan. Many of the camp's militants became loyal to bin bin Laden, unwavering loyalty because of what he was doing in Afghanistan. And even though the Arabs consisted of maybe 10% of the fighting force in the fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan, their presence was fully felt. The trickle-down effect of the monies that were coming in from the Saudis, the CIA, the British MI6, the Pakistan ISI, as well as the millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from donors around the world, trickled down to the Islamists or the Arabs themselves. And so what we saw here was basically um, a, re a renaissance, if you will, a changing of the guard. Because as the Afghans were getting killed, replacing them were the Islamists on the battlefield. And Azam's uh, fervent ideology of defensive jihad was basically becoming to take, I'm sorry, offensive jihad was basically coming to a, to a hold. And offensive jihad is this. It is the fight against the unnatural world, the secular world, the sinful world. And that the war is not the war within itself, within the person itself, in the cause of jihad or the cause of Islam. It's basically now the fight is outward, the individual. And the body is the world. And the only way to make the body healthy was to implement Islam through the cause of jihad. Azam's ideology began to take hold to the more fervent Islamists who saw Azam as not being so militant or less militant than they would like him to be. And so the Pakistan militants, as well as the Saudi militants, became unfavorable to Azam himself. In 1989, the Soviets agreed to a meeting with the Afghan uh, government, which was mediated by the Pakistan government under Ziaul-Haq. And the Soviets agreed to withdraw. All the weapons, all the money, all the training that went to the Mujahideen, the Afghans, the Arabs, did it automatically stop? No, of course not. Now, with the war over, these Mujahideen fighters basically returned back home to the United States. 
to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Southeast Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and the ideologies that were taught to them by radical Islamists like the Egyptians, Dr. Ahmed al-Zawari, Dr. Imam Saeed al-Sharif, they went back home with these ideas about offensive jihad. Saeed Imam al-Sharif would create an important document, a text, if you will, which was the, called the Essential Guide for Preparation. It appeared in 1988 and became one of the most important texts in the Islamist mindset. Quote, the guide begins with the premise that jihad is the natural state of Islam. Muslims must always be in conflict with non-believers, Fadl asserts, resorting to peace only in moments of abject weakness. Because jihad is, above all, a religious exercise, there are divine rewards to be gained. He who gives money for jihad will be compensated in heaven, but not as much as the person who acts. The greatest prize goes to the martyr. End quote. This ideology permeated with not just with bin Laden and the members of al-Masada, but also with Dr. Ayman al-Zwahari and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Zwahiri began to manipulate bin Laden. Al-Masada was basically not a terrorist training camp. It was basically a training camp for small arms fire toward the Afghans. They invited Afghans, they invited Arabs, foreign fighters, to come to this camp and to train small arms fire, guerrilla warfare, making of bombs. And the al-Masada camp moved to the Pakia province, away from the Afghans. Um, the ideologies permeated through the Arabs. And so this ideology would now replace the ideology of um, old uh, Arab nationalism, finally. On November 24, 1989, Abdul Azam was assassinated when his car, for which he was about to go to uh, morning prayers, Fajr prayers, in Peshawar, was driving with his two sons. And they were assassinated by a bomb that was placed, two bombs that were placed on a bridge and on a road. The car was totally destroyed, and Azam was immediately killed. Azam, months prior, was coming under constant conflict with Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who began implementing um, rumors that Azam was a CIA agent, that he was not for the jihad, and basically, Azam gave up the rights of the Afghan Services Bureau to bin Laden and Dr. Ahmed al-Zawahiri. 
because he did not want to cause any more discord. At the same time, inside the United States, Omar Abdel Rahman, who I mentioned before, the co-leader of Gamma Islamia, who was on a terrorist watch list in Cairo, Egypt, applied for a U.S. visa to come to the United States. The embassy in Cairo, uh, however, had CIA case agents dressed as U.S. consular officers and approved for Rahman's U.S. visa, even though he was on a terrorist watch list. His arrival to the United States to the Masjid al-Salam in Jersey City, Jersey, was met by its uh, imam, Mustafa al-Shalabi, uh, Mustafa Shalabi. Mustafa Shalabi was also somebody who uh, was interested or invested with the uh, Palestinian problem, just like Azam. Azam Assassin, uh, the assassins for Azam was never found, but the culprits, suspected culprits, were bin Laden, Dr. Ahmed Swahari, to take over the Afghan Service Bureau, or was it the Islamists of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia uh, who saw Azam as basically not militant enough? Um, or was it from the Israeli Mossad because they worried that after the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan, that the war that Azam was going to bring to Israel uh, because his family uh, was kicked out of the house that they lived in, in Janine, uh, was going to bring the Mujahideen to them. The Al-Kifa Refugee Center which was co-founded by Mustafa Shalabi and Fawaz, uh, Khalid Fawaz, uh, was also a primary importance in Operation Cyclone because that's where the money went to, millions of dollars. Meanwhile, the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, which is located in Brooklyn, was at once located inside a mosque, Al-Farouk, but basically got big enough to where it was a block away, became its own office. This was the only office inside the United States, even though the Maktab al-Kidmat, the Afghan Services Bureau, had contacts all throughout the United States, over 60 cities. And a renaissance was happening inside the United States. There was already uh, a terrorist contact inside the United States, which was Abu Nadal's group, a paramilitary uh, Arab paramilitary group, which was used by numerous intelligence agencies, including uh, Germany, Iraq, Israel, United States. Omar Abdel Rahman wanted to use the Al Farouk, the Masjid al Islam mosques, as conduits for funding for a jihad inside the United States. Shalabi was highly critical of Rahman's idea, and Rahman started spreading false rumors about Shalabi, in which in 1991, Shalabi was found killed. He was murdered. 
stabbed, shot, just days before he was to relocate uh, to Egypt. Rahmad now became the primary emir of Masjid al-Salam in Jersey City and Yal Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn. The Islamists who relocated from Afghanistan went to Chechnya to fight against the Soviet communist bloc there, which later went into uh, Yugoslavia, where uh, there was a war against the Muslims. Um, This caused a 10-year war there as well. Uh, there was also a civil war in Algeria at this time, uh, headed by the government led by Chadid Boujamin and the Algerian Islamic group. Al-Qaeda was not an organization until bin Laden went to, to Sudan. After the war, bin Laden went to Saudi Arabia and heard that the Ba'athist army led by Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, who invaded Kuwait, there was intelligence reports which later turned out to be false that they were lining up to invade Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden offered his services to King Fahd before a committee meeting that was chaired by Fahd and the council headed by also the, the director of the General Intelligence Directorate, the security services arm of Saudi Arabia, Prince Turkey uh, Al Faisal. Bin Laden's uh, outline was simple enough. He was going to use the Arab Mujahideen to fight against the powerful Baptist army. This was an embarrassing uh, scenario, and Bin Laden was basically rejected. His proposal was rejected, but they feared Bin Laden because. They saw what happened in Afghanistan. And so they put him under house arrest. According to Gerald Posner, uh, a journalist and, of course, a prize-winning author of many books and who basically was an independent investigator to bin Laden and al-Qaeda, he basically writes in his book, he, says, he basically states that there was a back, a closed covert meeting between uh, Prince Turkey bin Faisal and Osama bin Laden, and he gave him an ultimatum that they would unfreeze his assets, give him back his passport if he left the country. Bin Laden had sent delegates to the Sudan. Uh, it was headed by Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir, as well as Hassan al-Tarabi, who's the leader of the National Islamic Front. Hassan al-Tarabi was a powerful Islamic leader who basically wanted bin Laden to come to the, to the country. Now, the Sudan was basically a country that didn't vet its foreigners. So, in other words, if you didn't have a passport, you were still allowed inside the country. And so bin Laden and his Arab uh, counterparts from al-Masada relocated to the Sudan. And it was here that bin Laden spent millions of dollars, tens of millions, building training camps here and the infrastructure of the Sudan, which is basically what Tarabi wanted anyway. He didn't care too much for bin Laden. Meanwhile, the CIA began following bin Laden here and uh, amassed a large case file on him. 
CIA operative Billy Waugh, uh, a legendary counterintelligence officer who was behind the capture of Carlos the Jackal, along with Kofor Black, a legendary a CIA counterintelligence officer in his own right, um, began following and monitoring bin Laden in the Sudan. Omar Abdel Rahman wanted to attack uh, selected targets inside the United States. The Egyptian radical Wahhabi Islamists, this ideology uh, permeated with bin Laden, easily manipulating him. And with the Egyptians, like al Swahiri, um, Saeed Imam al Fadl, um, I'm sorry, Imam al Sharif, um, Abu Ubaidah al Bashari, Abu Ubaidah al Iraqi, Abu Hafs al Masri, these were hardcore Egyptian radicals who wanted nothing more to, to usurp their government, led by Mubarak, kill him, and implement a caliphate which would then spread to other Arab countries. This ideology was called the near enemy. There was a near enemy and a far enemy. And this ideology was permeated from Muhammad ibn Faraj al-Saddam al-Faraj, the co-leader of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who basically wrote The Neglected Duty, which was a, a, a document um, that called for the near enemy and the foreign. The near enemy was the Arab governments. And the only way for Islam to survive was to usurp secular Arab governments by force. His motivating uh, ideology came from Said Qutb. The far enemy was the United States and Israel. Knowing that the far enemy was gonna be hard, the operation of usurping Arab governments the near enemy, and creating an Islamic caliphate that would basically take over the Middle East and Southeast Asia would then fight the far enemy, the United States and Israel. The United States and Israel and its coalition partners were too much, too powerful against this small ragtag bunch of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. It was long-term goals. Dr. Ayman al-Swahari wrote a book, Nights Under the Prophet's Banner, in which he outlined the ideology of what Wahhabi Salafi Islam uh, should entail in Arab governments, and of course, bringing the near enemy, far enemy ideology uh, into this group, the Salafi camp. In 1993, uh, an FBI informant named Imad Salem was recruited by Nancy Floyd, who was head of who was part of the FBI's counterterrorism operations in New York City. She recruited Imad Salem to because he was from Egypt, and he claimed to have been serving as the Egyptian intelligence officer, which was a lie. Imad Salem offered services to become an informant inside the Al Farouk Mosque, where Omar Abdel Rahman was heading. Rahman 
won the trust. Uh, well, Imad Salam won the trust of Abu Abdurrahman and became his bodyguard. He became close friends with numerous contacts inside the mosque, and they were former Afghanistan mujahideen. Omar uh, Ab Abulima, Muhammad Salome, Idad Ismoil. And so we saw this radical fundamentalist from Afghan jihad come to the United States. And so their services were provided. Rahman wanted to use these people to make small pipe bombs, attack Jewish neighborhoods. But he also had an idea of, a, of bombing the World Trade Center. And so he tasked Imad Salem to build a bomb, a bomb big enough where it would destroy the World Trade Center. The man who influenced Salam to attack the World Trade Center was El Said Nosser. El Said Nosser uh, is an Egyptian-born American. Um, he immigrated to the United States in 1981, became an American citizen in 1989. Uh, he worked various jobs, small jobs, odd jobs uh, throughout New York and New Jersey. Uh, but he became employed uh, by the city of New, York, to, of New York to repair air conditioning at the criminal courts building. But he disliked American secular culture. And he saw American culture as morally corrupt. When he became involved with the al Mosque in Brooklyn, he became close friends with Omar Abdel Rahman. At about the same time as well, another recruit was Ali Muhammad, a sergeant at Fort Bragg of the U.S. Army, who began training people like Mahmoud Abalima, Muhammad uh, Salame, El Said Nosser in small arms fire, tactical training. Ali Muhammad was considered a triple spy because he was also an informant for the FBI and the CIA. There's an infamous photo of him and Mapgood Abalima at the Calverton shooting range in Long Island, which the photo was taken by the FBI. El Said Nusser in 1990 assassinated uh, a known radical, Israeli radical, Rabbi Amir Bakani, the founder of the Jewish Defense League. And in the United States, he was a member of the Koch Party, which is basically a terrorist organization in Israel. He was formerly a former member of the Israeli Knesset, and he was killed on November 5th, 1990, by El Said Nusser, who basically ran from the uh, the hall that uh, the, inside the uh, Marriott on the East Side Hotel. He was actually captured while running away because Mahmoud Ambalima, who was supposed to meet him inside the taxi, El Said Nusser couldn't find him. And so he ran into a taxi postal officer and they traded shots. Both men were hit, but El Said Nusser was brought to the same hospital where Rabbi Amir Kahani was. Kahani died, El Said Nusser lived. But El Said Nusser, before that, 
had basically sent messages to Imad Salem, who would visit him in prison, and basically told him to attack the World Trade Center, whether he knew how to build a bomb. So he said yes. But Imad Salem, Tandler, Nancy Floyd, was not getting along with her superior, Carlos Dunbar. Carlos Dunbar thought Imad Salem was basically useless. Nancy Floyd saw the value of his work. And Imad Salem was not getting paid well. Salem needed to get out of the operation because, of course, the FBI wouldn't allow him to build a bomb. And Salem basically told Rahman that he thought that he was being followed by the FBI. And so he laid low. The FBI cut off the services of Imad Salem, suggesting that he basically didn't want to wear a wire when he was at the mosque because it would compromise his position and thought it was too dangerous. So the FBI basically created rumors and spread them in the New York Post, a New York publication, saying that Imad Salem was having an affair with his handler, Nancy Floyd, created these malicious rumors, basically destroyed it. None of it was true. So the FBI basically forced Imad Salem out of the position, and Imad Salem told them, once the bomb goes off, don't come back crawling to me. Omar Abdel Rahman got in contact with the contact in Pakistan and basically told him to bring a person who could create a bomb. That person was Abdul Basit Karim, who also went by the name Ramzi Youssef. Ramzi Youssef at this time was basically a Pakistan uh, terrorist who was born basically in Balochistan. But there's also, uh, he was born either in Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Iraq, no one really knows. There's a lot of mystery behind his early years. But what we do know is that he uh, basically was a student at Oxford College of Further Education, uh, where he studied English. And um, he went to Swansea Institute in Wales, where he studied electrical engineering and graduated. Uh, he went to the uh, Kandahar training camp in Peshawar and basically uh, learned how to build a bomb or build bombs. Alongside with him was another person by the name of Ahmed Ajaj. Ahmed Ajaj at this time had an interesting background. Ahmed Ajaj was a counterfeiter. He was basically arrested in Israel, counterfeiting dollars. And while he was in prison, was accosted by the Israeli Mossad. And basically offered his services to infiltrate Hezbollah and Hamas, in which he did. He became such a good infiltrator um, that it is not known whether his operation stopped. And so he traveled with Ramzi Yusuf to uh, the Al Farouk and Kandahar training bases in Afghanistan to learn uh, how to build bombs. Ajad was considered the much more experienced bomb maker than Yusuf, even though Yusuf was an experienced bomb maker in his own right. Yusuf traveled to the United States from Pakistan with that judge, but while they were at JFK, both of them had false passports. Yusuf had accrually made one, but he uh, was granted asylum 
because when he got there, he basically said he was from Iraq and that the government under Hussein was basically oppressive and he wanted to escape. Ahmadinejad basically had a briefcase. And in his briefcase, his suitcase, was bomb-making materials. And also a document where the words Al-Qaeda was outlined. This was the first instance of the word Al-Qaeda was mentioned. And so at this time, Ahmadinejad was arrested and detained for... Uh, tried to enter the United States illegally. Youssef was going to be detained, but the jail cells were full. And so he was granted release under the, uh, the deterrence of customs officers who were there. Youssef basically got into a cab, even though he had no money, but the cab driver basically was uh, sympathizing with Youssef because Yusuf told him that he was a native Arab and he needed to get to a mosque in Brooklyn, in which the cab driver did. Yusuf arrived to Al Farouk and became uh, became a part of an operation of building a bomb, which was to be used in the World Trade Center. The idea came from not Omar Abdel Rahman, but Al Said Nosser, who was a representative of Omar al-Rahman. At this time, Israeli and U.S. relations was souring because under the Carter administration, Carter was known as somebody who was favorable to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Billions of dollars were at stake uh, through the oil revenue, the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, basically uh, had a powerful pact between each other. The, the United States would offer military uh, operations inside the kingdom, acting as a bodyguard, because Saudi Arabia was not a very good military. Saudi Arabia uh, allowed the United States to become, uh, allowed their military base to be permanently stationed inside the most holiest site of Islam, Mecca, Medina. This actually enraged bin Laden back in 1989, 1990, because while they rejected bin Laden to protect the kingdom, they allowed the United States to protect the kingdom, and this enraged bin Laden. And he became an enemy to, the, to bin Laden and to the United States. So Saddam Hussein and the Baathist army basically were defeated by the U.S. military in 1990 in quick succession. I think it was a week to basically defeat them. And so the Saudis basically, the United States was going to leave, but they basically stood. This enraged bin Laden and the Islamists themselves. And so Omar Abdel Rahman was also a sympathizer to bin Laden's idea. And while bin Laden was in the Sudan, uh, using uh, the Sudan as a uh, training camp outpost and building infrastructure and building business fronts that would give bin Laden financing. Uh, El Said Nusser and Omar Abdel Rahman wanted to the wanted to attack inside the United States, and so Yusuf was building a bomb, and this bomb was being built in a warehouse in New Jersey. 
helping him were uh, Ieda Esmoil, um, Mahmoud Abalima, Mohammed Salome, uh, and others as well, which I can't name right now. It's hard to remember a lot of these names. Um, and so, uh, uh, oh, and one of them was uh, uh, an important one, uh, Abdul Rahman Yassin. And so when the bomb was being built, Yusef would actually call the prison cell or, or act, uh, a judge would make collect calls to Yusef. And Yusef would basically get uh, helpful advice on how to build this urea nitrate bomb, which is built with canisters inside urea nitrate, fertilizer, nitroglycerin. Um, the bomb was basically 1,500 pounds, urea nitrate hydrogen gas enhanced device. Um, when the bomb was completed, Yusef, uh, which was, the car was driven by Yassin, Yassin, there was two, two cars involved. One was a rider truck, which was rented by Mohammed Salome, and another car driven by, I want to believe it was either Abalima or Yassin. One was a backup car. The truck in which the bomb was placed was a rider truck and it had a fuse, a long fuse. Yusuf lit the fuse. And this bomb was placed in Tower One, the North, uh, the North Tower. And it was basically um, at level two, which was the basement level, level two. The idea was to have the bomb knock out the base of the building and to knock the North Tower into the South Tower in which both towers would then crash down to Lower Baden, killing tens of thousands. Yusuf actually said he wanted to kill 50,000 people. The bomb went off on February 26, 1993 and created a huge crater, five floors deep. Um, but it killed only six civilians, injured 1,042 people. Most of it from smoke inhalation. Yusuf then sent a letter to the New York Times and also called on a phone claiming that they were members of the 5th Battalion in the Liberation Army and to declare responsibility for the bombing. The demands were the following. Stop all military, commercial, and economic aid to Israel. End all diplomatic relations with Israel and not to interfere with any of the Middle East countries' interior affairs. Now, this is important because while U.S. relations with Israel were not improving at this time, they were still strong. Israel's uh, U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia was going strong. But under the Reagan administration, he switched that. Now, this is key because Reagan, while still supporting Saudi Arabia, through military arms, over $130 million worth in one aid package, Reagan wanted to improve relations with Israel, unlike Carter. And Reagan was a staunch uh, nationalist himself. Under Reagan, we saw Donald Rumsfeld uh, at this time. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. 
Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who once served as the Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford, and again with George Bush, but he became an advisor. under Reagan. At this time also, there was another uh, neoconservative. His name was Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney uh, served as the um, chair of the House Republican Conference uh, from 1987 to 1989. Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld would become very influential later, especially under the Bush administration. But the neoconservative values aligned with the Israeli Likud party and the Israeli nationalists of Israel itself, the government. Menachem Begin, um, Benjamin Netanyahu later. And so this would form a coalition of sorts, if you will, a powerful coalition, which have a reverberating effect to the Arab Middle East. After the bombing of the World Trade Center, Yusuf was later captured in Pakistan, brought back to the United States. El Said Nasser um, was actually released he was found not guilty of the assassination of Rabbi Amir Kahani, which was miraculous. Um, the FBI went back crawling to Imad Salem and said that they would pay him $1 million to infiltrate the mosque again. And he did. He came back and basically acted as the bodyguard for Omar Abdel Rahman. And while there... Imad Salem was propositioned by a mosque member named Sadiq Sadiq Ali, in which Imad Salem propositioned to him, and this was recorded through FBI recording wiretaps, that uh, he was to bomb uh, certain targets inside the United States. And this was later called the Landmarks Plot. The bombing of Jewish neighborhoods, the bombing of the United Nations, the bombing of the Jacob Jappix FBI building, the bombing of the George Washington Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the World Trade Center again. The ideas came from Imad Salem. It was almost entrapment at this point, but he got Rahman to admit on tape that they would to also attack a military, a U.S. military outpost. This was used later um, in his trial. The Landmarks plot, which was basically uh, to target these high-profile areas. However, in 1993-94, the FBI allowed a warehouse in Jamaica to be used as the place where they would build these bombs. And Imad Salem actually um, would help in assisting them. And the FBI had cameras listing devices all throughout the warehouse. The code name was Terrorstop, T-E-R-R-S-T-O-P. 
Um, at one point, the FBI wanted to replace a blasting cap in the bomb. And Ahmed Salem said, no. This would compromise his position. He would be killed. If they found out that the bomb blasting cap was fake or the powder was fake. So the FBI replaced it back to the old blasting cap. On June 24th, 1993, after the group was observed for like a couple of months, the FBI raided the, the warehouse. This was caught on tape. Nine co-conspirators were arrested. And William Kunstler, who actually was the lawyer for El Sayed Nocera, who got him off, agreed to represent Omar Abdel Rahman and Nocera again, because Nocera was actually convicted, was actually uh, charged uh, being involved with the plot as well. Uh, at the same time, Yusuf, along with Abilima, Mohammed Salome, and the rest were charged for their crimes in the 1992 World Trade Center bombing. Now, to go back with that, this is important. Mohammed Salome, while everybody else was fleeing the country, including Abdul Rahman Yassin and Ramzi Youssef, Mohammed Salome unbelievably went back for a security deposit of the Ryder truck. At this time, the Ryder truck axle was located in the bombing, unbelievably. And the VIN number was on the axle. So they staked out the Ryder truck operation, um, the Ryder truck business, where Salome rented the truck and basically uh, went back for a security deposit. And he was automatically apprehended. When they went to the apartment, they found out on the application there was a number. And a number to this, uh, a name to this number was a name called Josie Hadas. The address um, which was used by Salome. went back to an apartment in New Jersey. Jersey City, New Jersey. I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry, Kensington, New Jersey. Where it was rented by Josie Hadas, the landlord. It was later found out that Josie Hadas was an Israeli Mossad operative. In the apartment was Ali Mohammed, the Egyptian radical and Fort Bragg reservist, um, where Fort Bragg documents, files for bomb making, as well as bombing materials were found in a closet recovered by the FBI. Another apartment that was searched, a Brooklyn apartment, was owned by Ibrahim El Gabroni, who was the brother of El Said Nocera. But the FBI would not comment on what was found at the apartment. But they did comment about what was found in Mohammed Salome's. What was known by the Israeli Mossad at this time, we'll never know. 
because Hadas went back to Israel and the FBI, as well as the New York uh, Terrorist Task Force, were not talking regarding uh, who Josie Hadas was and what she was doing. And so, with that being said, Yusuf was given 240 years for his participation in making the bomb, as well as Ahmed Judge, Mohammed Salome, Mahmoud Abalima, and Iyad Esmoil, all were given 240 years. Yusuf is currently housed at the Colorado Supermax prison, where he's basically given a lifetime order of being uh, in solitary confinement for the rest of his life. Omar Abdel Rahman, after the Landmarks plot, was given life imprisonment for his role in the Landmarks plot. At about the same time, Ramzi Youssef's uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was a uh, publisher for a paper of an Afghan publication, uh, which was uh, in charge by Abdul Rasul Sayaf of the Northern Lions, uh, was basically in Qatar at the moment. The FBI wanted uh, to investigate him. He actually ran into uh, Abdul Hakim Murad. But, but before Yusuf was captured, and I think I don't want to skip this over, even though I'm saying a lot. Uh, in 1994, 95, while he was on the run from U.S. authorities, Ramzi Yusuf, with his associate Abdul Hakim Murad, went to Pakistan and created an operation. An operation that would probably be the influence for the 9-11 attacks. This was called Bajika Plot. The plot was a three-phase terrorist attack, which was outlined by Ramzi Yusuf and his uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in January of 1995. And the, the, this was to assassinate Pope John Paul II, who was visiting the Philippines, blow up 11 airliners in flight from Asia to the United States with the goal of killing 4,000 pastors and hijacking one plane and crashing it into the headquarters of the CIA in Fairfax County, Virginia. Abdul Hakim Rod, who was actually a licensed pilot who trained in Texas, New York, and Oklahoma, was to volunteer his services as the pilot hijacker and crashed the plane to CIA. Langley. However, this operation, which saw a lot of money coming in from uh, Osama bin Laden's half-brother, Jamal Khalifa, who was married to bin Laden's sister, and of course, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was getting financing from Qatari government as well as uh, Saudi Arabia. The test for the bombs that were going to be used for the Bajenka plot was first uh, inside a mall in Cebu City. The bomb detonated several hours after he, he put uh, a fuse on it. 
and it caused minor damage, but it proved to be workable. A second, the second test was on December 1st, 1994, where another associate, Wali Amin, Ka, Amin Shah, placed a bomb under a seat at the Greenbelt Theater in Manila, Philippines, and a bomb went off. On December 11, 1994, Randall Yusuf himself built a bomb which had one-tenth the power of his final bombs that he was planning to have, and he put it underneath uh, a seat of uh, Philippines Airlines Flight 434, which was a flight going from Manila to Narita, which, which, had, which had a stopover at Cebu. So Yusuf planted the bomb and got off at Cebu, and then from Cebu, he went back to Manila. But the plane actually took off from Manila to Narita, and the bomb exploded uh, over Okinawa Prefecture. The person who was sitting in the seat under where the bomb was at was Haruki Igami, and he was killed. But half of his body filled the hole with the plane was, and that's what basically saved people on the plane. And the flight crew actually landed miraculously. People survived. However, while making the bombs in the sink, um, Abdul Hakim Murad uh, initiated a compound which emanated this black acrid smoke inside the apartment. And basically what happened was uh, the smoke went outside and uh, basically created a stir and the fire department came to police. And they found all these bomb making materials, crucifixes and this laptop. Yusuf escaped along with Abdul Hakim Murad. And Yusuf noticed that the laptop was left behind. He ordered Murad to go back. Murad did, but as soon as he got up the stairs, they all turned around and saw him, and he basically ran away, but he was captured because he fell over a tree stump. He was basically brought back to the Philippines uh, Police Department where Philippines National Police Investigator Rodolfo Mendoza um, interrogated him. And he basically uh, gave up the plot. That information was then shared with the FBI. This was 1995. Shortly after Ramsey Yusuf was captured, I, I had to make mention of the Bajanka plot because it's important. As far as foreign politics at this time, the idea of the neoconservative faction was to have a Republican president in charge where they would implement nationalist ideals using the Pentagon to destabilize the Middle East and to become the superpower that the former National Security Advisor Zygmunt Brzezinski once stated for the United States to remain a superpower was to take control of Southeast Asia and Eurasia and not allow the Soviet Union to become the power. But Brzezinski was not a neoconservative. He was a uh, part of the Council of Foreign Relations, but he basically uh, dis dis disavowed neoconservative ideals. But the idea uh, basically uh, really hit home with one guy in particular, and that was Paul Wolfowitz. Paul Wolfowitz came from the Paul Nietzsche school of neoconservatism, uh, was a student of Paul Nietzsche, as well as um, uh, Saul Bellow. Uh,
he was also a close friend and a colleague of Richard Pearl. Richard Pearl is a American political advisor who served as the assistant secretary of defense of global strategic affairs under Reagan. And so you can see that there was this new neoconservative faction, which had these hawkish principles, which aligned with Israel and the, and the Likud party, the nationalist party. And they saw the, 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 the value of Israel, of having Israel and improving relations with Israel, because to them, Israel was basically the extension of the United States inside the very area in which they wanted to control, which was the Middle East. And the Israeli Likud party, which was a hawkish neo-nationalist uh, neo, uh, neo party, um, had the same similar ideals of the neoconservatives. And I, I, I'm sorry, I had to go back. Paul Wolf, would not, it wasn't, wasn't um, Saul Bellow, it was Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss was the, the considered the godfather of neoconservatism. Paul Wolfwich, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney later on. And so Wolfowitz created um, the State Department. He would become the State Department Director of Policy Planning under Reagan, in which he himself would become uh, the author of the Wolfowitz Doctrine. The Wolfowitz Doctrine is an unofficial name for the Defense Planning Guidance uh, which was created in 1994. It was published by Paul Wolfowitz and his deputy uh, and his deputy Scooter, Scooter Libby, and it wasn't intended for public release. However, it was released to the New York Times, leaked actually to New York Times in 1992. The document was widely criticized as imperialist. And it outlined a policy of unilateralism and preemptive military action to suppress potential threats from other nations and prevent dictatorships from rising to superpower status. That's the Middle East. That's what Paul Wolfowitz saw. That's what Richard Pearl saw. That's what the Israeli government saw. And to an extent, that's what the Saudis saw because the Saudis basically wanted to become the sole superpower of the Sunni Islamic world. And their enemy was ultimately Iran, the largest uh, area of Shia Muslims in the world. The doctrine, the Wolfworth doctrine, stated the U.S. right to intervene when and where it believed necessary. Quote, while the U.S. cannot become the world's policeman by assuming responsibility for righting every wrong, we will retain the preeminent responsibility for addressing selectively those wrongs which threaten not only our interests, but those of our allies or friends or which could seriously unsettle international relations, end quote. Later on, the Wolfowitz Doctrine would then become the Bush Doctrine in 2001 or the ideas came from it. But you saw where the neoconservatives were heading. And this is 1992, 93. Meanwhile, bin Laden in Sudan 
created Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, which means the base, but not a database as some conspiracy theorists believe. It was actually the base Al-Masada. They were not a terrorist training camp. It wasn't until the Egyptians came and brought their Wahhabi Sayyid Qutb ideology of a worldwide caliphate through uh, the offensive jihad mode in which they manipulate bin Laden to now think of the far enemy as becoming more important than the near enemy. Bin Laden was basically forced to leave the Sudan. Pressure from the State Department and the CIA Bin Laden in uh, 1996 uh, then traveled back uh, to Afghanistan. But before that, while he, just months before he moved back to the Afghanistan, U.S. intelligence were, the CIA anyway, U.S. intelligence monitoring Bin Laden in Sudan, uh, monitored his house in Khartoum, um, created signals intelligence to surveil him, to record his moves. And bin Laden returned to Afghanistan. He was welcomed by the Taliban, in which he then started creating training camps for the Taliban. Meanwhile, the Taliban, headed by Mohammed Mullah Omar, uh, began fighting the communists in Afghanistan, as well as the Northern Alliance, headed by Ahmed Shah Massoud. Ahmed Shah Massoud saw the dangers of the Taliban and didn't want Afghanistan to become an Islamic authority, an Islamic country, because he saw the dangers of the Taliban. Meanwhile, the CIA were torn whether to support Massoud or to allow uh, the Taliban to take control of the country. So there was a rift inside the State Department as well. And the president at this time was uh, Bill Clinton. Clinton basically tried to... Uh, monitor bin Laden while he was in the Sudan. But when Billy Waugh offered his services to assassinate bin Laden, he was rejected by the Clinton administration. Bin Laden in 1996 uh, authored the, uh, the first fatwa against the United States. This fatwa, which was entitled um, Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places, which was a document complaining of American activities in Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden, who had an office in England, faxed the document to the London-based Arabic paper, the Al-Quds Al-Adarabi. The Taliban didn't want pressure from the United States because basically they were trying to create an Islamic caliphate in Afghanistan. Not for a caliphate like the foreign me, not like Ayman al-Swahiri's ideology. They just wanted to create Afghanistan as an Islamic country to fight against communism. 
the CIA basically didn't intervene. And Massoud went around the world, to France, to Germany, basically pleaded with the world to intervene, saying that now with, Al now with the bin Laden group, Al-Qaeda, inside Afghanistan, they, he was afraid that they would become an international organization. Meanwhile, at the same time, recruits were coming in. Bin Laden's media arm, which was uh, in Al-Qaeda, called As-Sahab, was basically producing videotapes, newspaper articles, uh, suggesting that there was a new jihad coming to the world, a jihad that saw the world as sinful. And so numerous recruits were coming in. But the now here's speculation. I want to make this quite clear. Who were coming in to train at these camps? Who knows? Now, there was a British, former British MI6 officer named Amen Dean, who uh, basically infiltrated uh, Al-Qaeda in 1998. Uh, he well, he basically was invited to Kandahar um, while he was in Bosnia. He was basically invited to Kandahar to swear allegiance to Osama bin Laden to join uh, Al-Qaeda. Because to join Al-Qaeda, you had to swear allegiance, bayat, to bin Laden. And there was documents you had to fill out. The whole nine yards. They had documents and files. And Al-Qaeda was an organized committee. They had a, a media committee, an Ashura Council, that's a religious committee, a committee, um, different committees inside this organization. So they were very well constructed. Very much so. Very well organized. And it took many years to do that. And the Egyptians were well organized themselves. Egyptian Islamic Jihad was a known terrorist out, uh, organization. A big organization in Egypt. Um, but Ahmed Dean actually infiltrated um, Al-Qaeda. In Afghanistan, Ahmed Dean trained Al-Qaeda recruits in the basics of Islamic theology. History and the essentials of like religious practice. Um, who knows who is infiltrating these groups? It's very easy for Arab intelligence like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, or even Israel. Israeli, Israelis have a group called the um, Oh, I, I uh, uh, the oh, I, I, I can't think of it right now. Israeli, uh, I cannot think of the name of it right now. Um, it was a small special operations group that uh, basically studied. Uh, I'm sorry, it's the Mister Arvim. Now the Mister Arvim. Um, is a is a name given to a very very select core group of counterterrorism, um, which operate undercover. Of course, now they use this unit to specifically train to assimilate among Arab populations in Palestine in Palestinian neighborhoods, because at this time Palestinians were still fighting for their legitimacy and to free up Gaza and the West Bank. 
which was basically the areas under control of Israel from the Six-Day War. The Palestinians were basically uh, losing more land in the 1990s. Uh, the Misa Avrim basically had about 15 months to train. And they considered this is the type of training they had. Four months basic infantry training at the Mitkan Adan Army Base, which was the IDF space, Special Training Center. Two and a half months of advanced infantry training in the same base. Two months of the unit's basic training, which focused on advanced urban navigation and the beginning of counterterrorism training. Four months uh, Mr. Avrim course, which covered everything from learning Arab tradition, language, way of thought, to civilian camouflage, hair dyeing, contact lessons, clothing, right down to the freckle. And one-month courses of sniping, driving, uh, and bomb-making. An incredibly dedicated core group of people. Who knows? Maybe members of that group infiltrated Al-Qaeda. But Al-Qaeda's security wasn't really strict. So who knows who was infiltrating these groups? while they were in Afghanistan. But in 1996, uh, bin Laden wanted a satellite telephone. And basically, he got one from a person uh, who was living in Long Island. who bought a phone from a Long Island uh, telephone service, which was then delivered to a name by a man's name, uh, Khalid Al-Fawaz. Khalid Al-Fawaz, who was in Missouri at the time, then took the phone to Tora Bora. However, the person who was um, under investigation by the FBI was the person who bought the telephone. That, that, man's, that man's name escapes me for the moment. However, um, he was under a, 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 a different investigation by the FBI. It was not related to bin Laden at all. Um, but the FBI uh, told the NSA to begin monitoring this cell phone, which was then uh, found its way into Osama bin Laden's hand in Tora Bora. A number kept popping up on this phone, and Bin Laden kept calling this number. And it was a home in Sana, Yemen. The home was owned by a man named Ahmed Al Hada. Ahmed Al Hada was uh, an associate of bin Laden from the Soviet-Afghan war. He was good friends with bin Laden, actually. He had a son, Samir al-Hadar. This actually, this house became the communications hub for al-Qaeda. The NSA began monitoring that phone from 1996 to 2001. 
They monitored bin Laden satellite from, nine, from 1996 to 1998 because in 1998, bin Laden got rid of the phone. It wasn't that he knew the NSA was wiretapping it. He had no idea. But he got rid of the phone anyway. During this time, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was propositioned by Abdul Hakim Murad before Abdul Hakim Murad was arrested by uh, US authorities. Um, Abdul Hakim Murad had met with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed a couple of years prior and propositioned an idea to instead now, instead of using bombs on planes, how about we use the planes as the weapons? After Murad was arrested and after that, uh, the briefing of Murad went to the FBI, that briefing was basically ignored. And according to Philippines uh, Sergeant Rodolfo Mendoza, he said that the FBI was well aware in 1996 of um, terrorists, Arab terrorists that were training in flight schools. This is 1996 now. This is what Murad was telling his interrogators. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is not a member of Al-Qaeda at this point, basically a freelance operator, um, who traveled to Israel while he was escaping federal authorities, the FBI, for being involved with the Pajinka plot. Um, so the FBI was basically trying to arrest him. But he did travel to Israel in 1997 as he fleed Qatar. He was almost captured in Qatar uh, by the FBI and the CIA, but they were both battling over who was going to arrest him. And it was suspected that the Qatari government warned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to leave, and he did, even though he was surrounded inside this apartment he was in. So he fled to Israel, but we don't know how long he was there for. And then he went to Pakistan. He met with bin Laden in Afghanistan in 1998 and propositioned him um, about an idea to attack the United States using planes. And the idea, if we're now take this with a grain of salt, okay, because this information came from people that were later arrested in Afghanistan after the 9 11 attacks. All right? Take this with a grain of salt. I'm not saying it's true or not, but this is what is reported from Ramsey bin Al Sheib and other Al Qaeda contacts and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed himself. He basically said that we'll we'll hijack 10 planes and crashed them into American targets. One of them would be a nuclear facility in which bin Laden said the idea was it was too big. Too many people would be involved. Later on, he then said he went back for another meeting with bin Laden. Bin Laden asked him to join al-Qaeda, and he refused. He said he liked to be independent. And bin Laden agreed to four planes. Now, bin Laden didn't create the operation. It is allegedly purported that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed created the operation. I believe that's true. I believe this is true. The operation was to, to crash four planes into targets. One of them was the World Trade Center, um, the Pentagon, and the U.S. Capitol. And the um, idea permeated. So now they needed operators to participate in this plot. In 1998, bin Laden created a second fatwa 
against the United States, this time much more personable. The fatwa was the World Islamic Front for Jihad against Jews and Crusaders. The fatwa complains of American military presence in the Arabian Peninsula, the blockade of Iraq, the American support for Israel, and it also purports to provide religious authorization for indiscriminate killing of American Jews wherever you find them. The signees of this declaration were almost Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al-Swahari, Ahmed Rafai Taha, who is one of the co-leaders of Gamma Islamita, and Mir Hamza. Mir Hamza was a, a jihadist from the Pakistani Islamic Front, or the World Islamic Front. The CIA got wind of this and created their own operation, which was basically called the plan. But before that, in 1996, two operations were constructed. And this was very important. One was headed by the Defense Intelligence Agency, the US Army. It was codenamed Able Danger. Able Danger was a classified military planning effort led by the US Special Operations Command, or SOCOM, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. It was created as a, as a directive from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Hugh Shelton, and Peter Shoemaker, General Peter Shoemaker. It was created in, in, uh, in early of 1999, in, 19, in 1996. At the same time, in 1996, the CIA created their own operation which was called the Bin Laden Issue Station. The Bin Laden Issue Station was an idea born from the head of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, or the CTC, David Cohn, who was the head of the CIA's Director of Operations. And what he wanted was to create a virtual station that was based uh, about following Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And the unit itself was unique because it would fuse intelligence disciplines into one office, the CIA, the FBI, the DIA, and the NSA. And the station opened in January of 96 as a unit under the CTC. And Michael Scheuer was headed as its chief of operations. Michael Scheuer, who was an analyst running the CT's Islamic extremist branch was especially knowledgeable about Afghanistan who was the primary unit, Schaefer then created a very core group of people, and they were basically women. And it would later come out, thanks due in part to Raina Lewiski and John Duffy, uh, some of the names that were involved with this operation, Alfreda Francis Bukowski, Michelle Ann Casey, Jennifer Matthews, um, a core group of dedicated women who were later nicknamed the Manson family, who were dedicated to Scheuer. And so they created these outposts and the CIA has base stations all throughout the world. In every single major city in the world, there's a CIA base station. Just to tell you how big the CIA is. 
the mission was to track bin Laden, collect intelligence on him, run operations against him, disrupt his finances, and warn policymakers about his activities and intentions. This was after the first fatwa. But when the second fatwa came, it was a whole new ballgame. In 1996, the first first objector of Al-Qaeda became an informant. His name was Jamal al-Fadl. Jamal al-Fadl was persuaded to come to the United States because he embezzled $110,000 from Al-Qaeda and he wanted to defect. He was a known gambler, a drunk, a womanizer, and he feared that bin Laden was going to kill him. So he defected to the United States. And that was influenced by Jack Clunan, who is an FBI special agent of the counterterrorism unit in New York, the I-49 unit, a core group headed by um, John O'Neill, legendary counterterrorism agent in his own right. In 1996, Clunin and the I-49 provided protection for Jamal Afado, who provided a major breakthrough on the creation, character, the directions of Al-Qaeda, which nobody knew except the CIA, who didn't share that information even with the FBI back in the early 90s. In May of 96, bin Laden, when bin Laden moved to Afghanistan, to, to, from Sudan to Afghanistan, um, the CIA had virtually abandoned Afghanistan, as I mentioned before. And so the country was under a civil war. A civil war between the Taliban, Ahmed Shah Massoud, and of course the um, the uh, the communists that left over communists from the Soviet Union. By 1997, however, the station, the, the Bin Laden issue station, had put out a plan, which was called Trodpint, which was basically to capture Bin Laden and hand him over for trial, either to the United States or to a neighboring Arab country. At the same time, Israel appoints Benjamin Netanyahu as its prime minister. This was a huge breakthrough. Benjamin Netanyahu was a core figure in the Likud party. Hamas, which was basically a Palestinian Sunni Islamic organization that was created out of the first intifada in 1987 and was basically given logistics and support by the Israeli IDF in hopes of having Hamas destroy the PLO. Even though Hamas was ideologically opposed to PLO, they basically became the Frankenstein monster that Israel helped to create. And maybe they wanted it that way because how else could they persecute the the Palestinian people? By having an entity that they could say is a terrorist group in which they helped to create. But going back to Netanyahu, Netanyahu was the first real nationalist, not seen since Menachem Begin. But Netanyahu basically had a very good relationship with the Bush family still. 
and he had a good relationship with Clinton. Um, so the Israeli-U.S. foreign policy began to improve greatly. And so Israelis began to persecute the Palestinians like never before during 96 and 97. Throughout Netanyahu's term in Israel, he was opposed by the left wing of Israel because they saw the dangers of the Likud party. And Israel at the same time was repairing relations with Egypt and Jordan. And this was to basically create friends from enemies. And this is basically also, and I, I don't want to really bring this up because it's such a, um, a questionable um, document, but it has some merit to it. And this was called the Yunnan Plan. And I'll quickly just go over this. The Yunnan Plan, um, which was basically uh, a paper or an idea that the blueprint for the Middle East was that Yunnan, basically Yunnan, who um, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, um, oh, now I want to think of that guy's name. Boy. Oded Yunnan. Good, goodness gracious. Okay, Oded Yunnan basically saw that he thought that the Camp David Accords in 1978 um, was a mistake and that one of Israel's aims for the 1980s would be that the dismemberment of Egypt, not the, not the uh, repairment of the country. And he described Egypt like, like a corpse and that it catered to Islamic fundamentalism. It catered to the Brotherhood's idea, Hassan al-Banna's Muslim brother idea, Saeed Qutb's idea of creating a caliphate out of secular Arab governments, which, by the way, was supported by the British in the early 1930s. The British actually supported uh, the implementation of Israel. This was the Balfour Declaration of 1938. However, the British were also behind the spread of the Wahhabi, Wahhabi Saudi Arabia. They helped Saudi Arabia become a country by having uh, the defeat of the Hashemites. by supporting the overthrow of Najid and Hejaz uh, from um, Al Saud. Which is the first president of Egypt, Mohammed bin Al Saud, or the full name, Mohammed bin Saud um, Al Murk, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Saud. Um, the idea was to create a Saudi state. And this was helped or precipitated by the British. And the spread of the Wahhabi ideals, Wahhabi Salafi ideals, which were very ultra-Orthodox and goes against the precepts of the Quran to get rid of traditions, to get rid of uh, foreign foreigners away from Saudi Arabia, stop praying at the, the tomb of Muhammad, 
and to the to implement the idea of offensive jihad, which was to take over uh, countries by force and say that the secular world was the enemy, not the inward struggle, the outward struggle. And this is not supported by 90% of Sunnis, even more so, maybe 95%. It's just basically the whole Islamic world thinks that this is just a offshoot created by the British and supported by U.S. and Saudi government, which they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be wrong, because that's basically what happened. So the blueprint for the Yunnan plan was to basically to separate Arab countries from one from another, and to basically have or implement. Arab leaders that would cater to the West, basically the United States and Israel. And this was a decades long process, but the papers themselves, uh, the Yunnan was uh, basically considered a conspiracy theory. Um, an English translated uh, document was created by Israel Shalak, which was appeared, which appeared at the Journal of Palestinian Studies. Um, he gave a foreword to it. Um, however, the strategy was implemented by Eric Sharon, who was the Prime Minister of Israel uh, from uh, 2001 to 2006. And basically, this uh, foreign policy of Israel with the Arab governments was basically similar to what we saw uh, with the Odin Yunnan plan. But later on, the idea you didn't really need the Odin Yunnan plan because you had the Wolfowitz doctrine to do that as well. And so in 1998, the um, embassies in um, uh, East Africa as well as, uh, I want to say, Dar el Salaam, Tanzania and, and uh, Kenya, um, took place on August 7, 1998. Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. It is stated that the intelligence services of the NSA and the CIA knew about this attack beforehand. Um, the U.S. Uh, East Africa em uh, embassy uh, basically were given warnings about an impending attack in the months prior. Uh, however, many people died in this attack, over uh, 200, I believe were killed, bombs that were driven in trucks. However, one person actually survived. And that was Mohammed Rashid Daoud al-Ohahi. He was supposed to be in the truck, but he left the truck, but he didn't take his gun. And the driver of the truck was basically the martyr. Martyr. He basically detonated, just like the other truck did. But Daoud al-Ohahi was basically in the hospital because as he was running away, the bomb blew up and he had basically burn marks on his back. And as he went to the hospital, he was seen going to a telephone and he called a number. 
And then he went to the hospital and basically the hospital saw his injuries. They put two and two together and they detained him, authorities detained him. The FBI later went to interview him and one of them was Jack Clooney. Um, he cooperated with the FBI. And he basically said that, who did he call? Because he was seen calling somebody. He said he had a telephone number. And that telephone number was 967-1-200578. That phone number belonged to a house in Yemen owned by Ahmed al Hada. The same house, the CIA and the NSA were monitoring two years prior. Now, the NSA were listening to the phone calls of this house two years prior to the embassy bombing. After the bombing, this number was then given to the CIA. The CIA had no idea the NSA were monitoring this house. The NSA will claim that they started in 1998, but they started in 96 because the number kept popping up on Bin Laden's satellite phone and the NSA were already monitoring it at this time. Um, at about this time also, U.S.-Saudi relations, foreign relations, uh, were beginning to massively improved because Saudi Arabia basically saw the power that they had. And the power was to, of course, the oil revenue of the country. Um, king Fahd, who was the king at this time, basically persuaded many people in high sectors of government through the Arab lobby. Now, many people don't know anything about the Arab lobby. They know about the Israeli lobby, APAC, which was a, but APAC is a conference, right? The American Israel Public Affairs Committee. But nobody knows about the Saudi lobby. And the Saudi lobby is older than the Israeli lobby. The Saudi lobby also has more money than the Israeli lobby because of the oil that they procure. Israel doesn't have much money. The good thing about the Israeli lobby was espionage. They're good for espionage. They're good for collecting signals and intelligence. And so the Saudi lobby saw the value of the work and started spending tens of millions in American government. And so the Saudis were basically trying to repair relations after the Reagan administration. And Bill Clinton was basically very friendly to King Fahd even though the Saudis were basically, uh, for example, there was a king, there was a bombing in 1996, uh, the Kobar Towers bombing in which uh, Saudi militants were basically involved with it. And the CIA basically thought that, well, uh, the Saudis weren't very uh, accommodating to the FBI. Uh, the FBI went over to investigate because it basically was a federal investigation, and Louis Free, the director of the FBI, said that when they got there, the Saudis were not uh, going to prove to help in the investigation. However, um, it was stated by the CIA that the Israeli Mossad knew about this attack, 
or had intelligence regarding this attack. Um, whether that's true or not, I, I, I can't tell you. I mean, there's nothing to suggest this. But um, it was stated that they knew days prior to the, uh, the attacks. Iran was blamed, and the judge awarded, I think it was like $800 million, uh, from the Iranian government to uh, the victims of the, uh, the, the bombing itself. And if you look at, you know, just to say a little bit on this too, if you looked at the bombing of the uh, Cobra Towers, it looks very much like the Oklahoma Murrah building bombing. Um, the, the damage is similar. And the, the, the bombing of the uh, Cobar Towers came from a, a truck that drove up into the gates, the security gates, and it was a tanker truck. And it blew up. And I think the bomb was considered like anywhere between like 3,000 to 5,000 pounds. Um, but it, it basically blew out, you know, the whole front of the building. But you can see that, look, information is power when it comes to intelligence. That goes for the CIA, the FBI, the Israeli Mossad, the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate, the Pakistan ISI, any intelligence agency in the world. Because with information, you could control anyone and anything. Because the NSA, let's just say, for example, the NSA who are monitoring this house in Yemen, I'm pretty sure, now this is speculation, I'm pretty sure that whoever was calling that house in Yemen, and it was a conduit for Al-Qaeda, they were talking about the 1998 attacks. And let's just say the NSA were listening to every single phone call every day that they knew about these attacks. Right? And if the Israelis had operatives inside these rings like Hezbollah, Hamas, Al-Qaeda... And they were bringing back that intelligence to their government. You can see where I'm going with this. You can manipulate these organizations, these fundamentalists, and their operations to your advantage. And this is where I'm going to get at with 9-11 in a bit. And I'll fast forward the best I can because I know I'm going on for quite some time. But I can't explain 9-11 without making sense of having all the players involved in who benefited from it without involving the fringe conspiracy stuff. And so I'm going to skip over the millennium plot of 2000 a little bit. Millennium plot, which was basically a transnational plot. Uh, involving um, Al-Qaeda. It was linked to Al-Qaeda which was the, uh, a, a, a multi-tiered operation, which was to bomb um, four tourist sites in Jordan, the Los Angeles International Airport, LAX, and a U.S. warship, the U.S. Sullivan's, as well as the hijackings, a hijacking of Indian Airlines Flight 814. And that was because there was a Pakistan, notorious Pakistan terrorist on board that plane. I mean, the people who who were involved with the hijack of the plane was pressuring for the Pakistan government to release 
uh, notorious terrorist Omar Saichi. However, the plot was foiled by law enforcement because the, uh, I want to say, I think it was Lebanese, I mean, I'm sorry, Jordanian officials heard about a phone call between um, Abu Zubaydah, an alleged Al-Qaeda uh, recruitment lieutenant, and um, somebody on the other line or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the other person is Qadir Obo Hoshar, who's a, um, a Palestinian militant terrorist. And the conversation was heard on November 30th, 1999, in which Abu Zubaydah said, quote, the time for training is over. Jordanian police then went and arrested Hushar and 15 others on December 12th. They put those 20 suspects on trial and they were found guilty. And six of them were linked to Osama bin Laden, including uh, a Boston taxi driver named Raid Hajazi. I, I got to mention this guy. Raid Hajazi is friends with um, or associates with Nabil al-Marab and Mohammed al-Zabi. And I'll talk about this group. I have to talk about this group because it's important, because it links to Logan Airport 9-11. Nabil al-Marabi, who's an, an, al -Qaeda, an alleged al-Qaeda contact, um, basically was uh, plotting to blow up um, an airplane inside the United States. Um, I wrote about an article about him. It, it, it's fascinating. Here's a guy who basically wanted to uh, conduct terrorist attacks in Boston, in Detroit. Uh, he had contacts with the, the FBI, the CIA. They tried to recruit him as a spy. Um, he wanted to martyr himself inside the, inside the United States. Um, and basically he was from Syria. Oh no, he went to Syria. Um, but he was a Boston cab driver and he wanted to bomb a hotel called, the, I think it was the Radisson. And basically he had a list of, of operations inside the United States. And he was basically always on the move. He didn't stay in one area at one time. Um, and so, so did Raid Hajazi. Um, later FBI documents said that Marab denied being with Al Qaeda, but he acknowledged it received security training in rifles and rocket propelled grenades while training in Afghan training camps, along with Raid Hajazi. And they would create fake passports. They were actually very good at creating fake passports. Marab actually wanted to steal a fuel truck from a rest stop in New York and detonate it in either the Lincoln or Holland tunnels. But the plan didn't come through because Hijazi was arrested abroad. Actually, he was arrested in Syria. And so also involved with the Millennium Plots was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Now, of course, some of you are saying, well, who's that? Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was the creator of the Islamic State. But at that time, he's a Jordanian militant. He actually was a pimp and a murderer. And he was a Jordanian prisoner, but he actually met somebody who basically influenced him to create uh, a group. And that, that person was Muhammad al-Makdasi. Muhammad al-Makdasi, a little bit uh, behind him, 
Muhammad, I'm sorry, Muhammad, Abu Muhammad al-Baghdasi is an Islamist Jordanian Palestinian writer, uh, a Qutubist, a uh, jihadi ideologue. And he's actually the spiritual mentor of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who went on to create uh, the group that would later be renamed the Islamic State, uh, Jamat al-Tawhid wal-Jihad. In 1999, Jamat al Tawid al Jihad basically were the first group to use car bombings in Iraq. And now they're just like commonplace. Makdasi is considered, actually, was considered the most influential living jihadi theorist of all time. And it's considered the most dangerous Muslim in the Middle East at one time. Um, and so from the millennium plot, Ahmed Rassam, who's an Algerian citizen living in Canada, who tried to, who built a bomb inside his car and was at the, uh, Port Angeles, Washington, which is the U S point of entry. Um, there was a customs border officer named Diana Dean who looked to his car and saw, um, explosives, which was quote, a blast 40 times greater than that of the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Africa. Ahmed Rassam was actually later, who later, we, uh, according to the FBI, he basically, uh, you know, was interrogated, but he wasn't tortured. He was interrogated and he gave up the plot. And he later asserted that the plot was facilitated by Abu Zubaydah and bin Laden. And also involved with the plot was Raid Hajazi, Akbud Musab al-Zarqawi. Zarqawi actually was uh, tried in absentia. He actually wasn't caught. Rassam's information went to the CIA, and the CIA created an uh, a infamous memo. Bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States, which was a presidential daily brief, which I'll get into a little bit. All right, so all right, so Rassam actually tells the FBI what he wants to do. The FBI now knows that there's actual Arabs inside the United States training at flight schools. Um, an FBI agent in Phoenix, Ken Williams, um, has an informant named uh, Henry Ellen, who went by, who was a Muslim convert, Abu Yusuf, um, who basically finds out that. There are Arabs in flight schools who hate America, and one of them was Hani Hanjour, who actually went to the University of Arizona in 1992 to study um, engineering. He also was training at flight schools in Arizona, in Saudi Arabia, Oklahoma, United Arab Emirates, and um, it was basically this intelligence that was coming in from the FBI. Warnings were now going up that there are Arabs inside the United States training at flight schools. Some of them had contacts with Al-Qaeda. Four knowledge, this is 1999 now. The FBI, through the director, Louis Free, basically uh, tried to give it to their superiors. Their superiors ignored it. It would become even worse in the years 2000, 2001. 
fast forward in 1999, bin Laden actually allegedly selects the four people that would be involved in the planes attack, which was the operation's name. Um, and so Muhammad Atta, Mawin al-Shehi, and Khalid al-Midar al-Fahazmi was selected to become pilots, as well as Ziad Jara. These young men, Muhammad Atta, Mawin al-Shehi, Ziad Jara, were students and became members of a mosque called Al-Quds in Hamburg, Germany. Muhammad Atta came from a very prominent family in Egypt. His father was a former lawyer. His mother was well-to-do teacher. Ziad Jara came from a very prominent family in Lebanon, a very secular family, did not have any religious inoculations whatsoever in his background, was friends with Jews and Christians. Um, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazbi, however, had notorious backgrounds. Khalid al-Midar actually was married to the daughter of Ahmed al-Hada, the man who's in charge of the al-communications hub in Sana Yemen. So he's the son-in-law of Ahmed al-Hada. He actually lived there from time to time. In 1999, in December of 1999, the NSA got wind of a phone call where a man by the name of Khalid talked to Khalid, and that's Khalid al-Midar, telling him to come to a meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It was a high-level meeting involving many people of the jihadi uh, Wahhabi uh, groups of um, Jema Islamiyah, a notorious terrorist group that has contacts with Al-Qaeda in the Philippines and Indonesia. Um, and basically, this meeting was held in a high-rise rented by Yazid Sufat, who is a former Malaysian army captain and businessman. The summit lasted three days, and it involved um, the following. Ridwin Ismuddin, who goes by the name Hambali, um, who is in charge of the Jema Islamia, a terrorist group in Indonesia and Malaysia. Ramzi bin al-Shib, Nawafa al-Hazmi, Khalid al-Midar, Taufik bin Atash, nicknamed Khalad, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and later on, Zacharias Musawi was reported to be here as well. The NSA alerted the CIA as well as the Malaysian authorities. The CIA then told the Malaysian authorities to videotape the meeting, but no sound recordings were made. Now, the videotape recording of the meeting, whether it's inside or outside, it's not known and it's not for the public record. There were also photographs taken by the Malaysian authorities. Those photographs were then sent to the CIA. The CIA then sent that photographs to the Bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alec Station. Alec is the son of Michael Scheuer. However, there was a new station chief of Alec Station in 1999, Richard Blee. And George Tennant, who's the director of the CIA at the time, implemented Richard Blee, because Richard Blee was more of a company man than Scheuer. Scheuer was too insular, even for CIA. And while this was going on, Tenet then implemented Code for Black to head the, the counterterrorism center. Code for Black implemented the plan, which was an operation. I'm sorry, George Tenet implemented the plan, which was an operation to assassinate bin Laden after his fat web 1998. And so the plan was outlined as a war, a war with Al-Qaeda, a war with an ideology, a war with a terrorist organization. It was the first time 
in history where a war was declared on a, an organization instead of a country. Um, after the meeting, Khalid al-Midar Nawafahadbi then stopped over to um, a hotel in the United Arab Emirates. The CIA still were following them. And the NSA was still monitoring the phone, were monitoring a phone by uh, Nawaf al-Hazmi, get a cell phone. And the NSA were monitoring that phone. Um, when Al-Midar and al-Hazmi were away from their room, the CIA case agents took photographs of the passport of Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, and found out on the passport they had dual entry visas. This information was then sent to the CIA's bin Laden issue station. And the first person to read it was Tom Wilshire. He's the deputy director of Alex Station, not the deputy chief, that's Richard Blake. He's second in command. The second person to read the cable, an FBI agent by the name of Doug Miller. Doug Miller saw that Khalid Al-Madar and Wafa Hadley were coming inside the United States. He then drafted his own cable with the attaches of the photographs of the passports up in, of Khalid al-Midar Nawaf Azmi and drafted the cable, which had to be authorized by Tom Wilshire. Michelle Ann Casey, who's the head ticket of the Ahmed al-Hada house, because the CIA was in charge of monitoring that operation, and that was given to Michelle Ann Casey. Michelle Ann Casey read the cable by Doug Miller, brought it to Tom Wilshire, and Tom Wilshire told Michelle Ann Casey to please hold off from sending to the FBI. When that cable was uh, paused from being sent to the FBI headquarters in New York and the United States, Mark Rossini, who was tasked by John O'Neill from the I-49 unit to become his eyes and ears of the CIA's uh, bin Laden issue station, then complained to Michelle Ann Casey. And Michelle Ann Casey told him that the cable's not being sent to the FBI because we think the operations are going to happen in Southeast Asia. So it's not an FBI matter. And that would be right. Because if Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Azmi were coming to the United States, that would mean that there was an operation inside the United States. And it would be the Department of Justice matter, not a CIA matter, because the CIA is not allowed to conduct operations inside the United States. And so... With that, the information was not shared with the FBI or the State Department for 16 months. Khalid al-Minar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, when they arrived inside the United States, were, were received by a Tunisian cab driver named Khalid Benamarine. Khalid Benamarine was told by um, uh, a Saudi official, Fahad al-Thumeri, who's the imam of the uh, King uh, Fahd Mosque in Los Angeles, California, told Kuali Benamarine to pick up these two Saudis. He wasn't told their names. To pick up these Saudis and bring them back to the mosque. And so Kuali Benamarine then picked up Khalid al-Midar and al-Azmi and drove them back to the, to the mosque. And Fahd al-Thumeri then provided lodging for both men for the next two weeks at these apartments that Fahd al-Thumeri had rented rooms in under his own name. From there, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi went to a restaurant in Los Angeles where they served halal meat. 
they were met by a Saudi government official named Omar al-Bayoumi. Omar al-Bayoumi then provided Khalid al-Mardar and al-Fahadmi lodging, provided a, uh, provided them IDs, uh, went to them to, to uh, help them with their applications about renting a car, gave them money. Um, and along with Omar al-Bayoumi was another Saudi official named Osama Basnan. Osam Basnam was getting money from his wife, Nabuida Dijikat, who was getting money from Haifa bin Faisal. Haifa bin Faisal is the wife of Bandar bin Sultan. Bandar bin Sultan is the U.S. Saudi ambassador under the Reagan, Clinton, and Bush administrations. But he came very close friends with the Bush family in the same light as the bin Ladens were, were friendly with the Bush family as well. In 1999, the Bin Laden family actually uh, blacklisted Osama Bin Laden from the family business, the Bin Laden, Saudi Bin Laden group. So no longer he was getting money from his father's construction business. Um, I'm sorry, that happened in 96. That happened much earlier. Um, so I don't know where Bin Laden was getting his funding from because he already spent tens of millions in the Sudan, and he was um, no longer uh, capable of obtaining funds from the Saudi bin Laden group uh, because he was a terrorist. He was labeled a terrorist at this point. Where the money was coming from, basically, I guess, from the organization's um, structure and, of course, sympathetic Saudis who were sympathetic to bin Laden, the ideal. And, of course, Saudi Arabia was basically paying blackmail money to al-Qaeda, to Abu Sayyaf, a terrorist group in the Philippines, uh, Jemaah Islamiyah in Indonesia. And basically what they wanted to do was they didn't want these groups to basically attack Saudi Arabia because they were still mad that they were allowing the United States to, to be stationed at the holiest place of all Islam, Mecca and Medina. So they were giving millions of dollars to Al-Qaeda. And this was basically reiterated even by FBI agent Sally Soufan um, and other Michael Scheuer, the former deputy a chief of Alex Station. And so the CIA began collecting data about Khalid al Bernard and Wafa Hadbi while they were living in the United States. And all of a sudden, the Saudis were basically monitoring Khalid al Bernard and Wafa Hadbi and giving him money, which was directly coming from a bank account of Bandar bin Sultan from Riggs Bank. At the same time, Mohammed Atta, Marvin Ashey, and Ziad Jara arrived inside the United States in the year 2000. It just so happened that while they were inside the United States, they were being closely monitored by the Israeli Mossad using moving front companies, such as Irving Moving Systems. It would make sense because the, this group called the Hamburg Cell, basically the Hamburg Cell from the Al-Quds Mosque, um, who I have, I have to also re rewind a little bit, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and um, other members of the mosque were being trained or manipulated by two men, Mohammed Haydar Zamar and Marmoun Dar Gonzali. These two men were Syrian gunrunners. Uh, Haydar Zamar was actually an al-Qaeda recruiter. Um, Marmoun Dar Gonzali was a gunrunner, basically had businesses in Syria, in Germany, um, had a bank account, uh, shared a bank account with, jeez, uh, I want to say, um, good Lord, he shared a bank account with somebody uh, high up 
goodness gracious. Um, and I, I, I want to say it because I, I can't, I want to tell it to you now, but uh, the bank account was shared with, uh, I, I, I can't say, I, I don't know, but with somebody very important uh, within Al Qaeda. Uh, and later, um, I think it was Mohammed Atta after the attacks, he had a bank account. It was released to Martin Dali as well. Um, so interesting enough. Uh, however, these uh, Mohammed Darkazali, Haidar Zamar actually manipulated this group to become more radical. Uh, they trained them in their jihadis mentality. They became fervent. So they arrived inside the United States and they were being followed by the Israeli intelligence Mossad using moving front companies in New York, in Florida, in New Jersey. And the Israeli moving front company was not known to the FBI or the State Department. So here, here you have two foreign intelligence rings that were following these al-Qaeda operatives who later would be involved with 9-11 attacks, and they didn't warn the FBI or the State Department. Um, the operatives, Marwan uh, al-Shehi, uh, uh, other muscle hijackers that were involved with the plot 9-11, their applications were sent to the uh, Riyadh Consular Station. And in charge of this was J. Michael Springman. J. Michael Springman denied a lot of these applications because they were incomplete. Some of them, they couldn't even speak English. Some of them didn't have money, didn't know where they were going, couldn't name the cities. They were going to the United States and they were on pause. However, this order was overridden by J. Michael Springman's superior, Shania Steiger. Shania Steiger was basically um, um, a counselor official and also somebody who had contacts with the CIA. He, she approved of all the 9-11 applications. I think it was like 12 or 13. Um, she approved of all their visas, which were initially rejected. Um, and so they came inside the United States in the year 2000. But the, mo most of the muscle hijackers came in 2001. And they basically came weeks prior. In fact, according to bin Laden, he basically states that the muscle hijackers had no idea what the operation was until about two weeks prior. Um, and so the pilot hijackers were basically operating freely inside the United States. Meanwhile, Able Danger, the DIA program, collected enough metadata about the Hamburg cell, as well as Omar Abdel Rahman, the Brooklyn cell. And that information was then had to be destroyed because they were considered US persons. And you can't keep intelligence or data on US persons for more than 90 days. So SOCOM lawyers actually told um, Eric Kleinsmith, who I interviewed, from the Land Information Warfare Activities Division, who collected the data, to tell them to destroy it. It was three terabytes of data, lots of data, impertinent data. It was already destroyed. And so Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, um, who was also into counterterrorism in Germany and Spain, basically, uh, along with Kleinsmith and the rest of the Able Danger Team, there was like six people in Danger Team, they made charts, and the charts were provided by Orion Scientific. They created charts of Bin Laden's connections to terrorists all around the world. And it was bigger than what they thought. 
and this information was basically not shared with anyone outside of the agency. Same thing with the CIA's uh, Bin Laden issue station. The information, and it was coming in piles of it, thousands of files, thousands of files coming in from foreign intelligence about these hijackers inside the United States pre and post 9-11, pre-9-11, years prior. Intelligence that they wanted to hijack these planes. The FBI, they were good foot soldiers. You know, I hear this conspiracy about um, the FBI uh, basically, you know, basically just part of the government. They're all in our, No, they were foot soldiers. Robert Wright Jr. of Chicago, um, uh, Colleen Rowley of Minnesota, Harry Salmon, Minnesota, Ken Williams of Phoenix, Mark Rossini, Doug Miller, Ed Getz, Margaret Gillespie, New York, Frank Pellegrino, New York, Jack Clunin, John Antisev, Leo Napoli, dedicated, uh, John O'Neill. God, I love that guy. Um, arrogant, but damn, he Ali Soufan, all these guys, basically the FBI, who were, were trying to warn their superiors about something coming, something big. But they didn't know why, and they weren't getting help. They weren't getting it from the CIA. They weren't getting it from the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. They weren't getting it from the NSA. And they weren't certainly weren't getting it from the Saudis or Israelis because they didn't even know they were inside the United States to begin with. Nobody told the FBI anything. And that's the problem. Whether it was deliberately not shared with them, I, I, can't, tell, I can't make that distinction because that's speculation. Weeks prior to the attacks, the intelligence were coming in as something big was happening. The CIA finally holds a national security meeting. Richard Blee intended, warns Condoleezza Rice, Richard Clark, that they had actual intelligence that there were terrorists inside the United States, but they never told them who their names were. These bastards who didn't share, even in August of August 6, 2001, didn't share this information. I mean, August 16th. But there was an August 6 PDB, a presidential daily brief that was directed to George Bush. It was given to George Bush. Now, George Bush was at his Crawford ranch in Texas. He was not at the White House. He was on vacation for the next few weeks. And they held, the CIA held meetings with him. Now, George Tennant would later testify that he wasn't there. But it came out that, yes, he was there. And the August 6th brief was Bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. This was important. Okay, this was the information given to them by Ahmed Rassam, the information that was coming in from the FBI that bin Laden wanted to attack inside the United States. The headline, bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. Condoleezza Rice would later say that bin Laden, the heading was bin Laden determined to strike the United States. So they neglected the warnings. Richard Clark, National Security Council, Ahead of the National Security Council, trying to warn the Bush administration, who won the presidency in 2000, tried to warn the administration about the dangers of al-Qaeda. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't think it was important enough. 
In the document itself, quote, nevertheless, FBI information since that time indicates patterns of suspicious activity in the country consistent with preparations of hijackings of other types of attacks, including surveillance of federal buildings in New York and Washington, end quote. For God's sakes, the warning signs were there. And these intelligence agencies from Israel and Saudi Arabia are not held to account for what they've done. They weren't even truthful about it. On September 9, 2001, Ahmed Shah Moussoub was assassinated when two men posing as cameramen from Algeria, who were basically al-Qaeda operatives, blew up the camera. Inside the camera was a bomb, killing Ahmed Shah Moussoub. I think this was basically bin Laden's idea of the Taliban protecting al-Qaeda from what was about to come. Protection from the United States. The response that was going to happen. On September 10, 2001, it was reported by um, security officials at Logan Airport uh, that six men tried to enter the tarmac of Logan Airport the night prior to September 11th. The security official's name, which name escapes me now, basically said that three men were dressed as uh, airline employees and three others were dressed as uh, civilians. And they didn't have the security key to enter the tarmac. And so they cursed him out and they left. In, in return, on September 10th, um, Ziad Jara, uh, I'm sorry, on September 8th, Ziad Jara rents a hotel, Days in Motel, in Jersey. He rents a room for himself, and the three muscle hijackers that are with him are rented a room for them. Now, this is particularly weird, because none of the pilot hijackers Live separately. Ziad Jara lived separately even while he was in Germany. Nobody knew who he lived with. He didn't live with his girlfriend, Aziel Sanguine, who he met in um, uh, Hamburg. Um, he didn't live with her, and he never lived with any of the, he was never seen with any of the hijackers except for one time. And there was a video of him and Muhammad Atta at Tarnak Farm. Now, there's no sound, but there is real video of Ziyadjara Mahabhanata. And they're talking about a will. It was later found out they were holding a piece of paper, and it was in Arabic. The, the Arabic was the will. And so um, what I, what I want to say after that is that um, Ziyadjara was basically always living alone, separately from the hijackers, was never seen with them. Even inside the United States, when he trained at the uh, at the Huffman Aviation, uh, and when Mohammed Atta Mohanashe trained at Huffman Aviation, he trained at the Florida International separately. 
He lived separately from them. Always. Which is strange. But I'll try and make a connection here. September 11, 2001, a phone call was made to Agent Sanguine. And it was made, the FBI cannot discern whether it was made at the Daisen Motel or at Newark Airport, which is by itself is strange. And that's in the 9-11 Commission report. It's basically said that Ziad Jara called his girlfriend and told her, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he hung up. He also sent a letter to her the night prior, but the letter actually had the wrong address. Now, you would think that writing a letter to your girlfriend, the last letter you'll ever write, you would get everything right. And I'll bring this up um, in a little bit and tell you why it's important. Okay. Um, all four men were seen at the airports. Ziajar was at Newark Airport. Mahmanata and Omar Abdul Aziz Alamari were seen in Portland. They're on video. They're seen at Logan by employees. One of them is Michael Chuway in Portland. The other one is Vaughn Alex at, at uh, Logan. Dulles Airport, there is security video, the CCT camera. And I know conspiracy theorists say there's no timestamp. That's a verant system. It doesn't have a timestamp. Okay. And the reason why is because uh, the timestamp gets in the way of people's faces at the bottom. And so it's a security camera. They want to see faces of the people going through security screens. And so, and also, there is actually a victim of Flight 77 in the security camera video. Nelson Martins actually, and myself, bring this name up, Marie Ray Sopper. She's seen holding a uh, cargo holder. It's red, and, and she has a cat in it, a pet cat. She's had, she has a white shirt, gray blouse. And behind her is Khalid Almidar and Majid Market going through security screening. Okay. They get on these planes. Yes, they were seen on these planes by officials, uh, by airline uh, employees who gave them their boarding passes. They got on these planes. And of course, um, we won't really know until the trial of Khalid Al-Midar and the, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the Guantanamo Five about what other information we weren't told the flight manifests, um, how many were on these planes. And I'll bring this up in a little bit. Flight 11 crashes into the North Tower. And while that was happening, three men were seen celebrating the attacks in a parking lot at Doric Towers in Jersey City, New Jersey. The woman, I know the woman's name, but I'll mention her as Maria. She sees three men celebrating with her binoculars. She reports this to her husband, who was at jury duty, came home and said, let's call the police. And she writes down the license plate of the truck. Bless her heart. It was important. The be on the lookout was later uh, iterated. I want to say this first, though. Flight 175 crashes into the South Tower. Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. And Flight 93 crashes into a field in Shanksville. Phone calls were made on these planes. And 
yes, these phone calls were authentic. Most of them came from air phones. And these are important. Some, in fact, two phone calls. Uh, no, in fact, I would say seven phone calls. Actually important. Why? Renee May, a flight attendant of Flight 77, states that there were six hijackers on board the plane. According to the FBI and 9-11 Commission, there's only five. Flight 93, six phone calls stated that there were three hijackers on this plane. According to the FBI, 9-11 Commission, there's four. Two flight attendants, four passengers stated three men, dark-skinned males, all wearing red headbands, were seen with, on the plane. One of them holding a fake bomb belt. The only hijacker who has a, a bomb belt. There were also reports of a gun on flight 11 and long knives on flight 93, 77, and 11 as well. How they got these weapons, no idea. But I did mention about the people that were seen by the security guard at Dulles, the Augerbright security guard, whose name escapes me, and I always mention his name because I think he's important. Basically, what happened was these planes, these people were had al-Qaeda contacts in, in the security of New York, at Logan, at Dulles, and at Newark that planted these weapons on these planes. The phone calls afterwards were, um, were basically not given the attention it deserved by the FBI or the 9-11 Commission, or they were ignored by the FBI because it went against the official narrative of the amount of hijackers on these planes. The three men that were seen by this woman named Maria were now five men in an Irving Moving Systems truck, which was seen by an officer, Scott DiCarlo, and John Riviolo, Dennis Riviolo, who were basically directing traffic at the East uh, Rutherford Parkway. They pulled the truck over and told the driver to get out. The driver never got out, and so they dragged him out. And while they were sitting on the curb, the driver, Sivan Kurzberg, told Scott DeCarlo something very unusual. Quote, we are not your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. Your problems are our problems. End quote. Why he would say that, I have no idea. But that's quite unusual to say that. Quite unusual to celebrate attack of the North Tower. Well, they were detained by the FBI for 71 days and they were ordered released by Dov, by um, Michael Shertoff. Michael Shertoff is basically a dual a citizen uh, and a former attorney and uh, the second, he was actually the former U.S. Secretary of Homeland, uh, he was actually the uh, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Defense under George Bush, but um uh, he basically um, was a, uh, a former assistant attorney uh, general for the criminal division. He basically brokered a deal between, I mean, he brokered the release of the five Israelis, but it was more than five. There were two more urban moving systems drivers, and this is important. 
these two drivers were seen on September 10th and September 11th. I mean, September 11th and September 12th. On September 11th, it was a truck, Irving Moving Systems, after the uh, Bolo lookout, which was nationwide, reported by Boston and New York, and through the news media as well, about an Irving Moving Systems truck. There was a truck in York, Pennsylvania. It was detained, but it was released. On September 12th, the same truck, was, which was coming from Ohio, back to New Jersey, basically was pulled over by Pennsylvania State Troops, and they said to the driver, where are you coming from? They said, we're coming from a client. And they looked in the truck, and it was empty. So they called the manager of Omni Moves. His name is Dominic Souter. Dominic Souter basically told the FBI that there was no clients due to the prior day's events outside the state of New Jersey. So the state, the state official from Pennsylvania, the police official said, well, how do you explain what's going on with these guys? And Dominic Souter said, it's strange. I can't explain it. Those two men were detained. It was found out that they both served in the, the, the uh, Mossad Electronics Division. Sivan and Paul Kurzberg served in Mossad, but they weren't as important as these, these two guys. Now, the highway that they took, Roy Brock, Moy Bubba, was the same highway that's linked next to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So they drove past it. When they searched the remains at Shanksville, they found a business card of Ziad Jara. They found his passport, which was burned at the end. And the photo looks quite different than other photos of Ziad Jara. Ziad Jara is very light-skinned. He looks white. He didn't fit the profile of the phone calls on Flight 93. It was later found out that the business card that Ziad Jara had was a cousin, Asim al-Jara. Later found out that Asim al-Jara was basically uh, a spy, not just for Israel, but for Iraq, Germany, and Syria. He was also involved with um, other operations as well. It was later told that Asim al-Jara later said that Ziad Jara didn't fit the uh, didn't fit the the background or the profiles of an Islamic terrorist. He would be right. Ziad Jara never did. A lot of these piled hijackers had a lot of suspicious activities around them. Um, Ziad Jarrah also had an uncle, Ali Al Jarrah, who was arrested in 2005 by Lebanese authorities in Hezbollah for being, I'm sorry, in 2011, for being an Israeli spy for 25 years. He has a brother, Joseph Al Jarrah, who is suspected of being a spy for Israel for 10 years. So here you have an entire family, uncles and cousins who were involved with Israeli and foreign intelligence. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda, who's supposed to be doing security on these profiles of the people involved with the most important attack inside the United States, and 
they didn't notice this? Asim Aljara also, um, there was a code name, um, an operation involving Abu Nadal, August 20th of 1988, an attack on Lufthansa Flight 651 from Athens, Frankfurt. The code name of the operation was Jara. My speculation is this, that Zia Jara was an Israeli asset or spy that infiltrated the planes operation group and the Hamburg cell and had collected primary information, which was helpful to Israeli intelligence about the operation that was going to take place right down to the day of the hijacking because he is seen at Newark Airport. The only thing that makes me think that he could have been on a plane was because he is heard, his voice is heard on the plane as saying um, that the plane was being hijacked twice. So whose voice is that? Was it his voice? Was he really in the cockpit? Um, because there's two men in the cockpit, one outside the door, according to the victim's families who heard the cockpit voice recording because it survived Flight 93. The transcript is public. The voice is not. And according to the voice recording, the, the passengers did create a revolt and they killed the guy outside the door. And so they bashed the, the cockpit voice, the cockpit door with the food cart. But the person sitting next to the pilot is saying to the pilot, Saeed, up down the plane. Saeed, up down. It says it right on the transcript. Well, there is a muscle hijacker named Saeed Al-Ghamdi is on the plane. What's he doing in the cockpit? What's he doing flying the plane? The other three hijackers are Ahmed Al-Nami and Ahmed Al-Hasnawi. Three men, all three are dark-skinned. Take a look at their photographs. And take a look at Ziyad Jara. He looks white. And they're the only ones of the hijackers who are wearing red headbands. Now, the other hijackers wore red headbands. They actually told the passengers on a plane that they were going to crash the plane into the Capitol. There was another report of the FBI report saying that they were going to crash the plane into the White House. There was another report on Flight 93 that they were going to crash into the ground. Why would they announce their plans to crash, knowing that this would cause an uproar? and a revolt. A lot of questions and answers. What came after 9-11 was even far worse than 9-11. The invasion of Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, which were implicated with the anthrax attacks and, of course, the torture of a Libyan uh, uh, terrorist, uh, Sheikh Ibn al-Libi, who basically told his torturers anything. And what he told them was that Iraq was in cahoots with Al-Qaeda and making chemical weapons. Um, this turned out to be false. But uh, Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell went before the United Nations Council, Security Council and provided the evidence from Sheikh Al-Libi's torture and the Israeli intelligence reports about um, meeting in Prague with Ahmed, uh, Ahmed uh, Mohammed Atta and um, Iraqi officials about anthrax. All that was false. So he went to war on false information. George Bush, 
Dick Cheney, the vice president, Don Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, the authors of the uh, Wolfowitz Doctrine, the authors of the PNAC document, PNAC, Project for a New American Century, which was basically um, a neoconservative think tank um, that focused on U.S. foreign policy regarding the Middle East and the Pentagon. Um, a number of the figures associated with PNAC have been members of the Reagan and the first Bush administration, and of course become the primary um, officers under the second Bush administration. And they had a group name for them called the Vulcans, Condoleezza Rice, Douglas Bice, Richard Pearl, the men who wanted to rebuild America's defenses and quote, the belief that America should seek and preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of US military forces and advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific geotypes that may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a political useful to, end quote, calls for the regime chain of Iraq. That's, that's what happened. It was the ideology of Oded Yanan and Paul Wolfowitz and Leo Strauss and the Likud party of, of, of Israel and the Wahhabi ideology of Saeed Qutb, which gave them the permission to attack these groups on the, the fake war on terror. It precipitated them. It bombed Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Pakistan, uh, Yemen. We're creating the terrorists to keep reciprocating the idea that we're fighting the war on terror. Meanwhile, we're funding them. We certainly did with the Islamic State in, in Syria. Under the Obama administration. By arming jihadists, Timber Sycamore, a classified weapons training program by the U.S. Uh, CIA, which was authorized by King Abdullah of Jordan and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The proposal was from the CIA director, David Petraeus, who, who went to President Obama. He later rejected the proposal, but later agreed. So you see what I'm saying here? You see what I'm trying to get at regarding 9-11? Regarding the extra hijackings that were supposed to take place on September 13th, 2001? Who are these people? The, high, the potential hijacking of Flight 23, United Airlines Flight 23, which was supposed to take out JF, of JFK and land at LAX airport, which basically didn't because the uh, CEO... Um, Gerald Arpey of United Airlines wanted no planes to take off once he heard that 175 crashed into the World Trade Center and that Flight 93 was missing. Who commandeered the air defenses? Amalgam Virgo 1, Amalgam Virgo 2, which simulated hijackings that were authorized bin Laden. Operation Vigilant Garden, Operation Vigilant Vigilante. All these air defenses, which were away from the cities that were under attack. What, who gave them the intelligence? The intelligence that these operations were going to take place. The FBI, who basically tried to share the intelligence with their superiors and were ignored. The CIA, who didn't share the information with the, the NSA or the FBI. The NSA, who didn't share their, 
their phone calls, the signals intelligence with the CIA or the State Department or the FBI. Why did they do this? Did they want this to happen? It makes you it makes you think it gives credence to the conspiracy theorists, even the fringe ones. And look at the disinformation that came from 9-11. Days after 9-11, no planes, no hijackers. 20 years later, we're still arguing over this. And what came after 9-11 was worse than 9-11 because what we're seeing is the ripple effects. The ripple effects of an attack that didn't have to take place. The invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, the destabilization of certain countries like Syria and Libya, um, the continued degradation of the Palestinian people by the Israelis, the Saudi uh, Arabian government who were basically financing the hijackers, who basically are being sued by the victim's family uh, through law firms like Motley Rice and Needler Needler through the JASTA Act, the Justice for U.S. Uh, Americans. A terrorist act. Um, God's sakes, we had the warnings going back in 1996 that they wanted to hijack planes. It was ignored. And when the 9-11 Commission and the Joint House Inquiry uh, were opened and commissioned, they were basically dealt uh, a losing hand. Why? Because in charge of the 9-11 Commission was friend to, to Condoleezza Rice, uh, Philip Zelikow. And they, were ba and they basically ignored the Able Danger Program, which was basically uh, eludicated by Lieutenant, Anthony, Ant uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer to uh, Philip Zelko in 2003. And they promised him that they would use that information in the Iowa Commission. They never did. And when Kurt Weldon, the Democrat from uh, the Republican out of Pennsylvania, called a commission staffer, Chris Kojim, about why they didn't use the Able Danger Program, Chris Kojum told Kurt Welding staffer, um, quote, it's not the story we want to tell, end quote. And that's a direct quote. So 9-11 Commission basically, yeah, set up to fail, I agree. The, the information that wasn't used, the, the secret uh, behind the doors um, um, interviews of George Bush and Dick Cheney, um, which wasn't dictated. Thomas Drake, former senior executive of the NSA, told congressional staffers that the NSA had so much metadata on the hijackers years prior to the attacks, it was never shared because it wasn't read, according to the NSA. They had so much metadata, it wasn't read. So you're telling me the most important operation, which was the Yemen hub in Yemen, the Ahmed al-Hada home, the, the primary source for Al-Qaeda communications, the information was never read. I, I find that to be nonsense. The CIA, nobody was fired. The information that was never shared with the FBI was later shared with Ali Soufan on the day of the attacks. A CIA operative went to Ali Soufan and showed him photographs of Khalad, of the people at the Al-Qaeda Kuala Lumpur meeting. Sally Soufan looked at those photos, became sick, and threw up in a bathroom. Why wasn't this data shared with the FBI? Because they could have monitored these hijackers inside the United States. They could have done it if that information was shared 
by the CIA, by the Israelis, by the Saudis, by the NSA. There's your suspects. There's your people. But if you don't believe in hijackers, you don't believe in hijacked planes, none of this exists what I talked to you tonight. And I and I I have to apologize that yes, this was long-winded, but it was it's it's basically a timeline of what led to the 9-11 attacks and what came afterwards. And I left out a load. I met I left out a lot, but there was a lot to talk about here. And it's needed to be said. I always thought about doing this, but um I had the time tonight. And I wanted to tell you this, and I hope it makes sense. And I hope it reverberates with you because you as investigators can now look into the information I provided here. And you can open up your own inquiries and your own investigations because all of it is true. I don't like lying and I don't believe in speculation. And, you know, the only speculation I'll do is with Ziajar being a contact for Israel. And, um, you know, I think he's alive. I don't think he ever got on that plane. I think the other hijackers did. Did Muhammad Atta did? I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, but I could tell you this. I don't think Ziajar ever got on that plane. I don't think he ever did. And I think he was the Israeli mole that was needed to infiltrate this group to know what this operation was and to have the operation unobstructed, uninterfered with by domestic intelligence. And to allow the operation to manifest itself because what came after 9-11 was beneficial to three countries, the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. I'm Adam Fitzgerald. That's the end of the Darker Dower episode.